0: Coming up next, The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy. Every Thursday from 4pm, right here on RCR. Reality Check Radio. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy, right here on RCR.
5: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to another edition of The Crunch. It's Cam Slater here, and we're going to crunch the issues in politics and beyond. Let me know your thoughts on anything you hear today. Text 2057 or email inbox at realitycheck.radio. So what do we have coming up on The Crunch today? First, I'll give you my thoughts on the power of your vote this election. And then we'll have Brian Tamaki, Leader of Freedoms New Zealand, talking about his highly innovative law and order policy. And following on from Brian Tamaki, we'll get this week's political tragic on the line, my good friend, Morris Williamson former MP and now Auckland city councilor to talk about his continuing career in politics. And we'll discuss a bit about his political background and some funny anecdotes from parliament and council. My final guest this afternoon is Don Brash, where we will crunch the issues of GST and how it's becoming highly politicized in the election. And we'll wrap up with my mailbag, of course, and some comments on GST by my buddies. Don't forget to let me know your thoughts, what you enjoy, what you hate, text 2057 or email inbox at realitycheck.radio. So let's get into it. Enjoy the show.
0: You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Radio.
5: This election is perhaps the most important election that we have seen in my lifetime. Never before have the stakes been so high. Around the world, we're seeing the global elites and the deep state salivating at the prospect of controlling our lives even more than they do right now. I never used to believe in the deep state or indeed a global cabal seeking to control and manipulate our every waking and sleeping moment. But I'm a believer now. After witnessing the election interference of the mainstream media and deep state actors in the United States, I am very concerned about our future. Between the deep state and the tech oligarchs, we are being censored and controlled in every way imaginable. When you see intelligence players, the FBI and the media act in concert to suppress news that they don't want you to see, then you know something is up. And something is never good for the ordinary citizen. That's why I joined RCR. That's why I'm trying to educate people about the things I've spent a lifetime learning. We need to be wide awake, because if we're not, then the same deep state players and their complicit pals in the legacy media will do to you what is being done in the US. Here at Reality Check Radio, we seek the truth. We seek both sides of any argument, and even some of those views in the middle. That's what good media does. Never before has this been so important. It's what drives me to do the best that I can do so that you are well-informed and well-educated, so that you can see what I can see. All the polls are suddenly aligning. They are telling us one thing, that a change of government is indeed possible. Now, don't worry about the actual numbers. Look at the trends. The big parties are stagnating or sliding, but people are looking for alternatives. So it's vitally important that you understand that how our system works. People talk about splitting their vote. This is just silly talk. Look, by all means, vote for a local candidate that you think will best represent you in Parliament. But a candidate vote is just that a candidate vote. In reality, it matters not. The party vote is the most important vote. It is what determines how each party is represented in Parliament. Sure, you can try and create an overhang, but the chances of that are remote. It's the party vote that counts. Now, I'm not gonna tell you how to vote or who to vote for. That'd be wrong of me. But I will tell you how to vote to change the government. You need to look at the polls then you need to scratch out those parties you would never, ever possibly support. And that leaves you with choices for the party vote. Next, decide which party best represents your thinking. You won't find a perfect match, but you will find one that best suits your core beliefs. Once you've got a shortlist, consult the polls and ignore any party that is not even close to getting across that important 5% MMP threshold. Near enough is not good enough. Here's where the reality check comes in. If a party won't make the threshold, it will be a wasted vote. A vote that pretty much ensures that Labour and Nationals soak up the lion's share of that wasted vote. That's how the system works. It's loaded in their favour. They hope that you'll waste your vote because then they don't have to get as much to get close to a majority. Do you really want that to happen? No, I didn't think so. So choose a party who looks like getting over the threshold. That means, folks, that if you want to change the government, it is my considered opinion that there are only three parties you can vote for. They are the National Party, the ACT Party, or the New Zealand First Party. Only they again, it's just my opinion, are the parties that oppose this government that can and likely will cross the 5% threshold. A vote for one of those should see a change in government. The power is with your party vote. Use it wisely, but make sure you vote. The power is with you. Right, that's enough for me. Next up, I'll be talking with Brian Tamaki about Freedom New Zealand's new law and order policy.
4: What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation.
2: with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission.
5: Love him or loathe him, you can't deny that Brian Tamaki is committed to making New Zealand a better place, whether it is through his church or his Man Up program or now through his political party. Brian is with me now to discuss his new law and order policy. Welcome to the show, Brian. Hi, Cam. Nice to be here. Good. Um, good to have you here on The Crunch. Mm-hmm. I, and, and we need to crunch some numbers from what you've uh, released on the policy yesterday. You've, in your policy, hard facts section, you've mm. got you know, ram raids have risen by 653%. Yep. It's alarming, isn't it? It's hugely alarming. But, you know, uh, the police minister, Jenny Anderson, would have us believe it's just because of increased reporting.
6: No, these are the facts and figures that we're talking about in in 2020, uh, sorry, uh, 2019 or 17, 16 years, six years ago, I should say, the stats were 119 at that stage, when they were in a coalition government, Labour with Greens and Winston Peters, New Zealand first, then they've hiked to that over 650% to 2022, which was some 857 ram raids. It's uh, huge. Oh, it's um it's unbelievable. And these facts and figures are from
5: police data, by the way. So we shouldn't be surprised to see these crimes rising, should we? When when the government has emptied the prisons, there's about 30% less people in prison now. So they're actually on the streets. That's right. With bracelets around their ankles. And then we've got the next set of numbers there. Homicides have risen. 68% and domestic violence has risen 48% with the, what did you say, 175,000 odd cases in 2022. Yeah. That's huh? an incredible level of harm in the community just from domestic violence, let alone the homicides. Yeah. And that's one of the most shocking
6: stats of all of them, apart from the ram raids and the rise in, um, assaults, is is the big one, assaults and personal assaults or acts leading to injury. That's where you see the venting from the general public. When I say that, you're talking about domestic violence, you're talking about what's happening in homes. And that that rise to 175,000 and some 700, I think. That is just, and that's just in 2023. That's just this last few months. So it's significantly gone through the roof. What we have, Cam, is crime out of control. And we've got a government who's also out of control, by the way, and they don't know what they're doing. They've run out of any idea, especially when you get the um, Minister of Justice drunk and driving and uh, actually missing from her portfolio job. We have many uh, changes in the police commissioner, that uh, police minister of police, has turned over four to five times, if I can recall. So there's a real mess at the top. So one of the biggest problems with crime rising in this country is the actual politicians themselves, bad policies, bad politicians and parties who are actually enabling a climate for crime to proliferate.
5: And, and you're talking about that in, in just in this preamble here. Police response times doubling, wait times of more than 100 minutes in some parts of Auckland. You've got wait times for civil cases to be heard in courts doubling. Wait times for criminal cases have increased 23% with an average wait time of 584 days. Now, if you're on remand and you're in Mount Eden, you're likely to be there on average. This is an average. There's some that are, that are, that are much higher than that, 584 days. There's a good chance that you in, under this government that you'll be sentenced to less than that for the crime that you've committed.
6: Well, that's been happening. Um, soft sentencing. Um, they're so overcrowded and so um, overwhelmed that they're actually putting them on home detention and this is a way of getting the numbers fudged as well. To CAM,
5: yeah. they,
6: they start moving numbers out of the prison. They put them into home uh, on remand or on the bracelet. Yeah, that's causing the problems as we've seen with the shooter in the CBD just recently with a with that with that problem we're talking about a violent offender, known oh. history of domestic violence, mm-hmm. um, and yet he was put out outside of prison and put on remand with a. Um, with a bracelet and you can see bracelets don't work and neither is Labor's crazy idea of shifting prisoners out of prison into the community and they call it remand or waiting and home there, home detention.
5: Well, you know, we've got all of these violent criminals on remand or, mm. or on home detention. Yeah. But we've got the police prosecuting the likes of yourself. That's uh, right. You know, Vinnie Eastwood um, and uh, and Billy Tikaha and uh, and then you've got the guy who was recently sent to jail for posting a video of him shooting a picture of Jacinda Ardern, but you can beat up your missus, you can choke her half to death, you can break bones in her neck, and you get home detention, you don't even go to prison. It's, there seems to be a disconnect between what the police and the judges are doing with regards to crime and what the general public wants to see and hear coming from politicians and judges and the police.
6: Yeah, exactly. Well, you hear the case of the 18-year-old who was recently sentenced for raping three uh, 15-year-old schoolgirls. He got nine months home D. And that shows you the level of incompetence and brokenness of our system. I'm talking about a minister of law and order. Um, the disconnect between corrections, uh, the police, uh, and the courts and the judicial system Um, is shocking. The lack of communication, we are seeing now that they are independently working from each other, and one doesn't know what the other is doing, and having an understanding of how not only they can get on top of crime, they have no idea about how to rehabilitate and to reintegrate these people back into
5: society so it's safe for the public again. When you say these people, you're quite specific Yep. As, as to where the problems are in society with regards to crime and law and order. In fact, you're very specific on that. Where do you see the problem is? Yes, I am. Well,
6: I think the number one problem of why crime has risen, got out of control, is um, the politicians, the parties that we have now currently making these policies. Hmm. You've got to see that over a period of time, it's not just Labor who are toast, really, and um, the way that the present judicial system corrections and the police have been performing or functioning is utterly unbelievable. And um, they they cannot any longer be in charge of that. But I I would also say to you National and Act of God are no better. National just wants to uh, put them in boot camps, which has failed already, mm. um, and throw away the key to the iwi and say, you deal with it. And I think um, David Seymour, some of his um, law and order policy up, I had a look at the other day, was he's going to smash the gangs. Well, okay, so we're going to have gunfire and and gun shootouts on the streets. But um, we have to do something in that area where people have got to see that what they have formally voted for has failed us. Mm. And to continue to vote for national, labour, Or anybody else, in fact, that's currently in there, is a recipe for disaster, proven history.
5: Aren't Labor and uh, National different sides of the same coin, really?
6: Yeah, well, I see National as the um, the other cheek on the same ass, (laughs) and um, David Seymour actor stuck right up in the middle. (laughs) Yeah, and um, basically that's naughty, but that describes pretty well. Um, how we're treated. We've just got an absolute great big bum up there or down there in Wellington. Yeah. It's, um, it's got to be removed or fixed. In the wasp's nest.
5: Yep. You've said very specifically, though, that we have a man problem and we've got a problem with Maori crime as well. Aren't, yep. Aren't you at risk of being called racist, Brian? Call me what you want. The thing is the public need to know the truth. And
6: I think that I'm only saying what everybody's thinking. But more importantly, the stats and facts, again, tell us there's a Maori crime problem. And so if you identify the problem correctly, then you can apply the proper solutions and answers to those problems. And what we have seen here, without any doubt at all, um, we have to deal with crime that's been generational and it's, it's, uh, it's deep, about three or four generations of crime that's become a part of the Māori way of life. So no one gets better results with Māori than me.
5: And how do you do that?
6: Well, we're already doing it. And I've got a program called Man Up currently, which has now been running for some uh, 10, 12 years. Uh, But in the last seven or eight years, it's particularly um, mastered how to deal with, Some of these, uh, well, society's worst nightmares and people who we see most of the crime committed. Māori are overrepresented in every negative statistic that's going. And particularly in prison numbers, like well over half, I think something like 53% are Māori men and a whopping 78% are women in the women's prison you'll find that mostly who goes to jail mostly go back gets back in prison is Māori. So we definitely um, have a Mori problem. The last time I looked to see if a, if a ram raider was blonde, blue-eyed, I couldn't find one. Um, and that is the fact. So, Cam, we've got a solution for the Māori problem. And um, with Man Up now working consistently well, uh, across the country, we're in Australia, where it's um, getting all the Aussies joining it now, actually. Again, Aussies taking something from New Zealand because here we're a bit slow to uptake because corrections have kept us out. Yeah, This government doesn't want man up in there either. And that's been a continued uh, battle uh, since uh, we were at the stairs of Parliament about six years ago. And um, they just did not want a bar of it. But privately, the Minister of Justice at that time, Andrew Little, wanted Man Up in the correction system. And he said himself, along with Seymour, also Judith Collins from National, and Winston have all said, and we've got that recording, and it's on here, of course, they said that Man Up is no doubt the most successful program, not only in prevention and intervention, but in the transformation
5: and then integrating them back into society again. There's a, a lot of people out there, but in particular from the Maori Party, that will say that these statistics show the inherent racism of the justice system, the colonisation of New Zealand and colonisation of the law and order system, and that we need to decolonize justice and decolonize New Zealand, and then the statistics will get better. What do you say to that? No,
6: it's um, not a race problem. It's a, uh, it's a human problem. Yeah. And crime is not a race condition. It's a human condition. It's not based on your skin colour or a culture. It's a human condition. And as I said before, we're all part of the human family. If you start isolating race, race-based politics or race crime, you probably categorise crime into a race category. You're in trouble, and we've seen this already, Cam, with the Kōpapa initiatives and a lot of the Maori initiatives that have been running. And I can say to you, with multi-million dollar, actually billions of dollars behind it, have failed. Um, you just look now at the present stats again and the facts that tell you that not only is National and Labor failing, failing us for safety and reducing crime, Māori is also failing themselves in trying to do this. And so that's why I say a man up is not a, a Māori solution. It's a human-based solution to a problem that works. It works with European. It's working with Australians right now in Australia. Man up's working also in Europe. It's working in India. So it isn't a race problem It's a human condition, and we have found a way and be able to help these particular people involved in crime, that's Māori, and how to properly rehabilitate them, not the way they get rehabilitated now. This doesn't work. Mm. Then they are brought into a transformational community where they're taken out of their old associations and they're with people that they look like them and they are people who have been where they've been. Our living a successful and a prosperous life. That's the way you properly integrate them back in from gangs, from broken homes, and from a life of crime that is possible. It's not an event. It's a process. Transformation is a process. So you've got to have that process right. And it's, and the way that the corrections department treat it now, it's like an event or you do this particular program we put to you, tick those boxes. And after that, they're let loose again and they're not properly transformed. So recidivism is very high and they end back in prison after they've either robbed, uh, they've either committed a crime or rape or whatever, and they're back in prison.
5: Isn't that the, the, the problem we've got? We've got generations of yep. criminals who have been brought up in a criminal lifestyle and their only role models have been criminals and that's the only way that they know how to behave in society is as as a criminal. And what you're saying is that your new transformational family program that you're proposing with this policy will break that cycle. Yep. Well, we offer them a better alternative.
6: You exit the gangs, you're going to come into a place where you can uh, legally work and prosper, have what you need to live a good life with your family, that your children can be educated better, that you can have the work that suits you, and that you make a good living, and you're, you're out of the life of crime, and you have a future. So we have thousands of families of men that are in that um, beautiful position now that have made it. They've exited the gangs, and we've broken the cycle of dysfunction in these Maori families because many of these young ran raiders don't have fathers, mm-hmm. or if they've had a dad, it's been a, a bad dad or a dangerous dad, or a part-time dad. Yeah, part-time dads, and that's that's what happens. So <clears throat> Maori have adopted this culture, unfortunately, because they need money. Everybody needs money to live, pay your bills, and get ahead. And because the opportunities are slim now and it's generationally three, four, five generations deep, you have to disrupt that or intervene and be able to offer them an alternative that they see is is far better than what they're getting now from the gangs. Illegal money done with illegal uh, products and substances and, of course, the criminal acts that they do on society. So you get them prospering. You get them into work. And we've had that operating right now. I can take you to a number of contractors and businesses that have employed some of the worst nightmares in society. And they're making it. So while they're working during the week and the evenings, they're going through the mentoring, man up program, and legacy for women. And they're bringing these men to a wholeness. And it works. And that's
5: the thing about this it works. That's one thing that you also said. is that you want to bring in family mentors into the community to help those families, that they've got life coaches, for want of a better term, that they can go and you know bounce ideas off or talk about, we've got a particular problem in, in our home, this is the problem, how are we going to go about solving that?
6: Well, 65% of youth offenders do not live with dad. So there you go. So what we have as fathers, and we've been very strong on raising fathers to save our children, that's been the mantra. And what we believe is a man problem in this country. That everywhere you go, the man problem being that if you don't have fathers to affirm and to validate their kids and raise them properly, then you can't, you cannot expect these kids to um, have some proper role modelling and have a future or see something that has hope for them. So with our programme, we have whole communities that they live with and they're able to be mentored, not just in talk, and you sit around in a circle like some of the conventional rehab programmes. This is one where you watch, you you see your role models, you live with them, you work with them, you go fishing with them, take them hunting. Then they see how we treat people, how you talk to your wife, mm. how you treat other people, what your what your whole world involves. So it's a life context that transforms people by almost more as caught than taught. Yes, and that's the Maori way. And so a lot of programs that you have done by Europeans, and I say this respectfully, does not understand that in Maori they love the context of doing, seeing, and being with in a natural environment rather than being in a room just confessing what you've done wrong and then promising after 10 weeks that you're going to do good and then walk out the door.
5: A number of years ago, we used to go to lunch with my mates and we had lunches at the church. There were a group of gang members uh, would meet up beforehand, and it was the start of the Grace Foundation, which was created by David Latelli. Yeah, and um, I used to drive up in my ute, and these guys would be all outside, you know, talking and everything, covered in tattoos. Yeah, I I well remember one day, um, in summer, there's, you know, they're all in shorts and singlets, and there was ankle bracelets everywhere. And you know, one of the guys came up to me, and he says, "Oh, are you a hunter?" And I said, "Oh, yeah, I am." And he said, "Uh, "Pig hunter." And I just got talking to him, um, and then he said to me something that was really strange. He says, "Mate, you're not afraid of me." And I said, no, I'm not afraid of anybody, mate. And he says, oh, well, I've, I've got all these tattoos. And I said, well, I said to him, you know, mate, I find it very hard to be afraid of anybody who'd let somebody scribble all over their face like that. And he just cracked up laughing and he says, you're definitely not afraid. Why is that? I said, because you're just people. You're, yeah. just, you're just people and you've run into trouble. And he goes, oh, I've, I've been in prison. I said, I know, I can see on the tattoos. And he goes, oh, you know about that. Oh, he says, I've killed people. I said, well, that, that, that's pretty bad, but I'm still not afraid of you. And, um, and I found that interacting with these guys, they look fearsome, but they just really want to be ordinary people, even though they've done all these terrible things. And a lot of people are too afraid to talk to uh, these gang members and the people who've come through the, the crime. I don't call it a justice system. I call it a crime system. Because all we're doing is processing criminals and they end up living with criminals and their mentors are criminals. And what we're doing is fostering a crime system here. That's but right. The saddest thing of all of this is that almost all of those people that I banged into outside those lunches were almost all Maori. But all the solutions that are being proposed and aren't working, and we can see they're not working from the statistics, are all focused on Maori. So you've got a solution to that, haven't you? You're saying that funding should not be race-based. It should not be anything of the program should not be race-based. They should be family-based. Exactly. But the the key, though, is is you're saying let's get away from race-based funding. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well,
6: Māori have been given basically billions, not millions, billions of dollars, when you see Willie Jackson and the Maori caucus and the Labour Party, um, they've received a million dollars almost for the five years they've been in there. Um, for the for the three years of that five, uh, over a billion dollars on top of the millions that go to Ma- Maori co-papa, and these are the Maori initiatives to try and get on top of this problem, and yet it's got worse cam. And that's not, I mean, I need to include in here, not just the Māori, the kaupapa driven ones that go to tikana. I'll tell you the honest truth, it does
5: not work. But some of that money goes to gangs directly, like the mongrel mob, doesn't it?
6: Well, I think more goes to elite greedy Mori than the the gangs, to be honest. There's some smart Mori that are not so smart, they're crooked. And they are in places where they are parmitted off to their mates Maybe putting a front laundering shop, kind of, you know, we're helping to our people. They're I'm washing it. Yeah, they're helping themselves mainly, and just their little group. And it's obvious it's not getting down to where most Maori families, who are really good about this, they they are not into the warting that some of the well-known names I could say here are doing. It's not getting to where it's most needed, and that's why I believe the Man Up program without any government funding whatsoever. We don't get any government funding. None, none whatsoever. None whatsoever, no. And we're also blocked from accessing the prisons and the inmates are screaming for the Man Up program. These are the ones that are telling their partners when they visit, they come out and say, can we please have the Man Up program? And then they say, no, that program is not allowed in here. So there are two obvious big blockages over the last six years particularly So, you imagine what we're doing with nothing from the taxpayer, using volunteer people who are now very skilled at turning people's lives around, doing it after hours, after they work, giving their lives to this. You'd imagine what we could do with the billions that these greedy Mori programs are sucking up and not getting any results, nowhere near the results that we get. You'd imagine what we could do, Cam. And that's why my biggest um policy is that we're going to flip the whole prison system on its head. Wow, yep, and what I mean by that, you'll see now that corrections have lost control of the um the prisons inside the prisoners. Gangs are definitely running it at any one time. there are forty three different gang affiliations in prison, and most of them in the uh the center where they're isolated are uh, hardened gang members. And when you get a lot of the new ones, 1,300 recently in remand are younger. They're younger men who go in for some of the crimes that gets them to be promoted, and it's a part of the whole deal of getting introduced to a harder gang life. Now, they go in there. By the time they get out of the remand time, being exposed to these hardened gangsters, they are fully hardened now gang members. And this is the problem. What I want to do, is do exactly what the gang members are doing. I want to recruit them out of the gangs. So we would heavily put the program in there that those that go on remand, it's uh, mandatory to do the man-up program at least twice, three or three times in their term in there. And we would do a, we've got an exit, gang exit plan that every person that comes in there will be interviewed in a room with the right interviewers, Given them the option to get out of the life of crime and joining gangs, and we will give you a start in job and in the future business to prosper your family and to look after your children and to make sure that you have all the necessities to live a crime-free life and a successful life. If they take that option, we say to them, we will um, separate you from the main prison of gangsters and you'll go into a part of the prison where it's those that are exiting when they come out and they'll come straight in to the transformational community. So I'm gonna do what the gangs are
5: doing, just flip it on its head. We're gonna well, to... So what you're saying is when they enter the, the correction system, the prison system. Yep. They can choose the red pill or the blue pill. And you want to put it like that. where you,
6: you can choose yeah. a better life. Or you can carry on with a life that will
5: take you yep. into and if, they, yeah, if they,
6: mm. and if
5: they choose to say, "I don't want to be part of the gangs anymore," then you've you, their exit strategy from those gangs starts right there. Yep. At that time when they make that decision.
6: Yep. I'm letting you know and the public know that our prisons right now are owned by the gangs. Yeah. The gangs use those prisons to basically get their next tier of gangsters and their, their membership. That's why it's risen by 71%. They have got the same number of gang, gang members as the police force. Now, listen to this. Back five, six years ago when I think it was 3 News approached the corrections minister that still at this time as well, Calvin Davis, and they said to him, why won't you take man up into the prison? Because they got great results. And Calvin Davis said, no, because Brian Tamaki will recruit them for his church. And, I mean, we're all stunned watching on television <laughs> as the corrections minister said that. In other words, what he was saying, I'd rather the gangs continue to recruit them for a life of crime and be a part of what's the problem the problem is in New Zealand and now that it's unsafe than to actually let them be recruited to go to church with their family and at least live a life that is not going to harm the public and actually look after their kids. Can you believe that? So I'll probably put the question to the public. Would you rather have the present correction system's way of doing it, that the gangs continue to recruit for their gangs, or Brian Tamaki recruit them to come to church and be better people? That's the options, you know. He said his ninety-eight million in rehab would do better. Ninety-eight million rehab he just did recently would do better. It's about twenty-four
5: months ago, the results got worse. Well, if we crunch the numbers on that, that it has got worse, much much worse. And yep. people in Auckland, in particular, uh, in some communities, are living in fear on a day-to-day basis. Yeah,
6: and I hope New Zealanders know in their desperation. And fear to see something done in law and order that they don't just you know go for a Christopher Luxon and a you know you know a typical national party law and order things just to slam him in jail, throw the key away or build a different type of boot camp or bring in an Australian idea of the of these what does he call it the um the squad yeah. now from America uh, from Australia.
5: Raptor Force or some stupid Yeah,
6: name. yeah, that's the the Raptor Force Force Six or something. But,
5: but we're you're not but you're not talking uh, you know, giving these people a free a ride. A free ride here, because no. you're also talking about tougher sentences, aren't you? You're saying that yet. that if you are a gang affiliate or a known gang member, mm. you don't get to do community based sentences. You don't get to do home D. You oh. go to prison. Yep. When it comes okay. to sen- – yeah. so you go to prison, but when you're in prison, it's, it's our solution now for prisons. You're gonna, you've got the option to do the man up um, program. You've got the option to rehabilitate yourself in a more meaningful way. But yeah. you are going to prison.
6: Yes, you're going to prison. There is tough sentencing for gangsters that are involved in community crime uh, or violence. Um, the sentencing is going to be tough. We take the approach of being tough but tender. Um, those two things have got to work together. So, the sentencing and the soft approach by Labour and National as well and Act, um, we're going to uh, move that aside and make sure you do the crime, you're going to pay the time. Yeah. In prison, it's a setup. We have them all together. And I believe the master plan that we have of a gang exit plan to reduce the number of um, gang members and also to deal with some of the worst criminals uh, in society right now when they come to prison. So that's why I believe that our flipping the, the the whole gang and prison system on its head to do the program we've got is going to get far better results than what they're doing now.
5: On the one hand, you're saying we need to get man up into the prisons. Which essentially is a private company. But on the other hand, you're saying that private companies have no business running our prisons. But the state doesn't do exactly a good job of running the prisons either. So I'm, I'm a little confused by that policy because I on want to.
6: Why do you think I'm sitting before you now talking? Yeah. Because the state isn't doing a good job. And that's not the state per se as a state. What is a state? We're talking about actual people, politicians. And parties, and that's why I said the number one um, cause uh, of enabling crime in this country is bad politicians and parties and policies they make that enables this crime to happen. And so I'm standing talking to you or sitting here talking to you because I believe we have solutions to be able to turn this around, make our country safe again, our workplaces safe again, and our schools safe again. But you can't do it with the wrong people cam. And everywhere you look in this system, you've got wrong people in charge. I mean, you look at now the replacement level of the Minister of Police and Justice Minister and Corrections Minister who's entrenched himself in there in the last six years, I think, or more. And the disgusting thing about this is that we all feel powerless because we can't do anything to get rid of them. And that's why this election will be the most important election in New Zealand's lifetime. And I'm appealing to the public of this country to consider this law and order policy is the only one that's going to get the job done, make you not only feel safe but be safe if you party vote Freedoms New Zealand. Get me in there and the stats and our history prove it and get those incompetence out.
5: Part How, of this, how's that, Cam? Well, there's <laughs> a few other things that I want to touch on as well that are really interesting. Uh, we, we mentioned at the start that you're saying there's a man problem in, yeah. in crime in New Zealand, and there's a Maori problem with crime in New Zealand. How are you going to address this man problem in New Zealand?
6: The man, we, we, we've heard, we've heard the, first thing, the first thing I want to do is to appoint a minister of men. Good grief, that's going to upset Marima Davidson. Yeah, well, they've got a minister of everything else minister of child and youth, child and youth, and minister of women's affairs, woman of family. You notice that of all the ministers for the most important unit in society, which is family, they haven't got one for men. Now, if you think about it. The real situation in this country is that if the men of this country were more responsible fathers uh, to their sons and their daughters, we would cut at least three quarters of the crime problem in this country, Cam. And as I said to you, I gave you that stat before about how many of these kids are in fatherless homes or they've been in homes where they've had abusive father. Mm. So if you want to go deep into this, and that's why I said – Transformation is a process, not an event. Mm. You see that the father problem, the man problem, is one of the biggest issues in New Zealand's culture that has to be talked about, discussed in public, and more importantly, to bring the solutions that I believe we have for this.
5: This makes me nervous, having a a minister for men or or a men's ministry. Do you need it? You, need you know me- why it makes me nervous? It doesn't make me nervous because Brian Tamaki, Tamaki uh, proposed the idea. It makes me nervous because the kinds of people that are attracted to the civil service yeah. are kind of not the kind of blokes that we'd probably want <laughs> to be doing this. So I could just imagine uh, the Ministry for Men would have a diversity quota uh, where they have to hire a whole lot of trans people no, um, for the job or people with man buns or um Bun. men, man purses. No uh,
6: good answers, eh? No, no, no.
5: Yeah,
6: like- that's why we need a minister of men, because that's why you got men who want to be women. That's why you got men who are not being responsible. More importantly, for their kids at home. That's why you need a real Kiwi bloke to address all of the man issues that you just. Uh, spoke to that into
5: your your listeners. I can imagine the corporate wardrobe, it's probably um shorts, uh, <laughs> hunting boot hunting boots and um you know and a camouflage top. I, I think that that'd work really well. That, be far. that in Wellington
6: far better than seeing a man with hairy legs and a dress on and some eyelashes done up and all that sort of stuff. Hot <laughs> heels. So you know we need we need what it is. It's a it's truly a problem. Sons need to be mentored. We don't have kids now in our days now that have a father that truly teaches them great values. We're about values and life principles. And here's another one, morals, morals. Just what is right and wrong? What, what is wrong now with families teaching them what is a man so their boys know what a man is to grow up being proud to be a man, validating their daughters, so they don't go and try and find it everywhere else in society. And if if you've got men who are being great family men, it's not the job of the government to tell us what our kids are. It's the job of a man, the father, to affirm the gender of his children, not not even schools. Schools are not the first place of education. Home is. So if you get the home right, everything else is going to come right. And I think the collapse of family has been the collapse in our societies has been the rise of crime and the out of order we have in our government departments is right down to making the man know who he is and healing him and giving him his responsibilities. That's a big step in the right direction and getting our whole society right.
5: That's good, isn't it? Well, I can hear the critics now, you know, saying, well, Brian Tamik is not the right kind of man uh, to do that sort of thing. But then again, they'll never produce who the ideal man is. And, uh, look, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I'm just wondering how we can implement that. Easy. Just look at the fruit,
6: the results of the person talking. Hmm. Um, my four-generational family is very healthy. I've raised a great human... Uh, I mean, development program in my life, as well as the churches here in Australia. I've been a hardworking Kiwi on farms, raised on the farm. Forestry, had my own company or business. Played rugby. I'm a musician. And I love fishing and hunting. I'm your ultimate true blue Kiwi. Ride motorbikes? I've got a motorbike, got a car, got a truck. Um, I love my country. Yeah. I'm a patriot. So if anybody wants to fire bullets, go ahead, um, let the dogs bark, but this caravan's moving forward. And what? If, I add up, if I add up to being able to do the job, does it really matter about what my belief is? Does it really matter what I look like? Does it matter what my faith is? If I can get this country safe, reduce ram rating um, figures down to pre-labour, I can make your workplace safe. I can make our streets safe and clean it up in 180 days. If you put us in, if I don't, I'll walk out in shame. Now, that's a great invitation to see where you are now with that after making all the statements you just did about me.
5: (laughs) (laughs) I'm just just checking, Brian, that you're the real deal here because in your policy you're talking about guardian accountability. Yeah, all too often we see little scumbags appearing before the courts. Uh, they're underage. Uh, they're from broken homes or whatever. Their legal guardians don't know where they are or what they're doing. And, and will we hear is, our oh, poor little, um, poor little Sebastian here has um, had a bit of a rough um, upbringing, and what he really needs is more hugs? But what you're actually saying in your policy is that the guardians of of youth are just as important to be processed, uh, remade into better humans. Absolutely. By your policy. Absolutely. Well,
6: we will hold legal guardians to account. That's That's got to happen. So it's not just the kid or, or the young youth standing before the court, it's going to be their caregivers, their parents, the guardians. Yeah have to be responsible to in a way that they have to face up uh, to their irresponsible uh, parenting and then we give them help. We get them through that. That's This is why uh, when I was talking before when you basically have a problem with the men, the cornerstone of all of this is family. You've got a prime minister that doesn't even know what a woman is and you've got a leader of the opposition that doesn't know what a man is. So is it a little wonder in this country now that we've got parents coming undone at the sides when they're trying to redefine family so many different ways, the confusion that's out there right now mm. about what is a family. We must be one of the only countries I can think of in the Western world that's gone stupidly crazy to understanding what principally and basically is a family. Now, honestly, for me to talk like this on your radio show, to say that father, a father and a mother is still the only way to not only have children, because a man can't get pregnant, let's put that to sleep, hmm. but to raise kids so you don't have criminal criminal uh, families passing on the criminal lifestyle, you have to get that family right. That's why Māori crime is a reality because you have to now work with multi families to interrupt what I call a dysfunction that's now been made normal and making it a part of the multi culture. And that's all that kaupapa-driven initiatives do. So we have to interrupt that. And I will take a lot of persecution, a lot of criticism, a lot of hate. Um, let it come, but I will let my works talk for me. The results will talk for themselves. And the reason why I can say that is not theory
5: because we're already doing it. You talk about the importance of someone having a mum and a dad. It's not just a mum and a dad, though, because they've got a mum and a dad now. Dad might not be there often. What you're really saying is a good mum and a good dad.
7: Well, that's But you've
5: you've got the techniques or the strategies or the courses or the training that's required to make these people better parents. Exactly.
6: Well, your parents need to know where their kids are out at 11 o'clock at night, you know, not roaming the streets, for instance. You've got 10, 11, 12-year-olds roaming the streets. Then that's what's happening. And they're looking to convert a car. They do that by the hours of between 11 and 12. Most of the RAM ratings happen between the hours of midnight and five in the morning. So that's why we think that introducing mandatory curfews, a certain age group of 15, 16 down, that they can't be roaming the streets at night, waiting to convert a car, and then go and do the RAM ratings. That's what's happening. It's simple, really. It's not complicated that you can clean up RAM rating, as I said, You put me in there and our team, and we'll put those ram raids out of business fairly quickly. But you have to understand that on the other side of this, there is a big problem with the guardians not taking responsibility for their children, their youth, Um,
5: and we have a big family problem in this country. You've got some bold goals in this crime policy, law and order policy. Let's just state those right now. You're yeah. saying that within the first 180 days, yep. six months, yep. Right. remember the elections in October, so we've got the silly season uh, mm-hmm. immediately after that, Christmas and, and New Year, where basically the whole country shuts down. But you're including that in the first 180 days. Mm-hmm. You're going to reduce ram raids by 653%, domestic violence by 48% homicides by 68% and gang members by 71% in that first 180 days. That's serious stake in the ground stuff here. How are you going to deliver that? Easy. First of all, you have to vote
6: Freedoms New Zealand party vote to get me and what I'm basically giving you an introduction to, to this law and order policy. So when... The public get a hold of it by tomorrow night, and it comes out. Read it through very carefully. And last night, um, that that's going to happen. You, they will see how we're going to do it. I don't have the time to do it here, but if you give me the power to govern or to have that portfolio, that promise is good and true. So when you read through the stats and the facts, and then read, see our facts and stats with dealing. With the type of people that are committing these crimes, we know how to do it. That's the thing. We are already doing it, Cam, but we have been uh, prevented from actually having a better uh, influence on the crime that's happening now, and we certainly don't get any of the taxpayers' money. As I said before, if we even had a quarter of what the corrections are wasting and not working – um, those, not only can we fulfill that promise, but we can also rehabilitate far better so that those people don't have to take up prison space and we have less. So, a need for the Minister of Law and Order to make this change that's what we got to have a Minister of Law and Order so that that Minister then works with, uh, with corrections, with yep. the police force and the justice system. That Minister of law and
5: order, is myself. So you're saying Brian Tamaki is, yeah. if you're in a position to form a coalition, because that's the reality of politics. Well, the reality of that is the New Zealand public
6: are going to want a safe New Zealand. Yeah. They put your vote to something you know that already has history that it works. They don't have history that works. It's failed. It's a simple... Um, Observation, and so I'm saying there it is. If you want change, I'm your man. If you want law and order to be proper and functioning, and working for the public's uh, satisfaction, then you've got to vote party vote freedoms New Zealand, and National and Act, which will probably be the next government, accidental one I may say, the desperation of New Zealand to get rid of Labour. Then you make them include us for that portfolio. And that will be recognised breaking the five percent threshold. And let's look at say between five to ten percent. That would be easy to go to um, Luxton and act to say, "Well, here's the people speaking. The people want law and order done properly. So you must give this to uh, Freedom's New Zealand, Brian Tamaki, to take that portfolio and work with them. That's what people do. They tell politicians what they want." not politicians
5: telling us what they want. In order to get that 5%, you're Mm. going to need 150,000 Kiwis. 170,000. Yeah, 150, 170 depends on the vote. Mm. What's your plan to get that 150,000 votes, given given the track record in, in attracting votes in the past?
6: I've never stood before. This is my first time in standing myself. Right. I've supported others. But now I'm putting my own bacon out there um, because I believe it's the right time with my experience um, to stand uh, for the public of New Zealand who are crying out for safety and law and order. So I believe um, that uh, with Sue Gray as the co-leader, together with the parties that have joined and united with the Freedom New Zealand umbrella, We are a great alternative to the two old, same old parties that New Zealand keeps voting between, uh, backward and forward. And they say that when you keep doing the same thing over and over and you expect a different result or want a different result, it's called insanity. And that's what we've been doing as a population. Halfway through their term, National will screw us. Then we all run back to Labor. Halfway through Labor's term, they screw us, and guess where the public of New Zealand put the vote for the next election? Guaranteed. That's one gamble you can take. They go back to national. We've been doing it for 88 years, and we're still losing. So for goodness sake, New Zealand, be bold, take a risk, and here's a good party. have got good experienced people. We've stood for you. We've fought for our families, fought for our faith, for our flag, and for our future. It's not a gamble, really. We've got history, good history, and we'll do the job. So I think it's the right time in this election to put a party vote to Freedom New Zealand, to at least get us through, to take the law and order policy, to get that minister uh, basically in action,
5: and to change the future of our country to be safe and prosperous again. Well, you've certainly shared with us a, a different vision for corrections, justice and crime in New Zealand. And it's certainly worth diving into in uh, in detail that we're able to do here at Reality Check Radio. Mm. And I appreciate you coming on the Crunch, Brian, and hopefully we'll have you on the program again uh, closer to the election. And then we can... To the 40? Then, yeah, then we can uh, gauge exactly how well you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Good, Cam. Hey, look,
6: I've enjoyed it. Thank you so very much for having me on the show. Oh, you're welcome, Brian.
5: Mm. Wow. What do you think about those law and order policies from Brian Tamaki? They're certainly different, but with his proven track record and success in changing people's lives, perhaps we should have a look at giving these ideas a go. It's ambitious, but it could be worth a crack since what we're doing currently is not working. Thanks for tuning in to RCR,
0: Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio.
8: We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. RCR is on a mission to revive Honest Media, and now you too can help make that happen. Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so. Receive exclusive benefits only for members, including your very own backstage pass, to join the hosts for interactive behind the scenes discussions. And also, our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference.
5: My good mate, Morris Williamson, has spent 30 years in Parliament, and now he is an Auckland City Councillor. He is this week's Political Tragic, and he's here now to discuss and share his political journey. Welcome to The Crunch, Morris.
9: Thank you very much.
5: Now, you and I have a very, very, very long history of involvement in politics together, haven't we?
9: Very long, actually. Longer than I think anybody else I know, really.
5: Well, maybe Winston Peters had probably beat that by a little bit.
9: No, I just meant our relationship because it well predates me going into Parliament and I'm only a few years short of his parliamentary time. So,
5: Well, that's right. You know. And um, I can remember when you um, went and came round and sat in Mum and Dad's lounge and said, uh, look, John, I'm, I'm going to stand for Parliament. And there's oh, great, we're going to have a new candidate, need an electorate. And then you said, uh, yeah, I'm going to seek the nomination in Pakaranga. Why did you? Why did you do that after all the shenanigans that you and I got up to in Eden electorate, pioneering probably the first dirty politics ever.
9: Probably yeah. Well, I, I guess it's just I've got a background in mathematics and physics, and I've always used computers. In those days, we didn't have spreadsheets and PCs like we do now, but I did some numbers, and uh, when I was going to stand, that was an eighty-seven. Roger Douglas had been in power for three years and the vast bulk of National Party voters liked what he'd done way, way more than what the previous Muldoon regime had done for nine years. I mean, Muldoon brought in wage freezes and price freezes and carless days and all sorts of what you'd call. 66
5: cents tax in the dollar.
9: Yet sixty six cents. I mean, I keep telling people, think about it. Two thirds of what you earned above, and remember, it kicked in at twenty two thousand dollars of income. So anything over twenty two grand of income, the government took two thirds of what you earned. And I've always thought all taxes theft, but certainly sixty six cents is bloody theft. I can only sat down with my computer. And I looked at eighty-seven, and Eden wasn't winnable. And your dad was pretty upset about it because he wanted me to stand in Eden. I said, "It's got you haven't got a chance." Oh, rubbish! We'll win Eden Comfort, I said, "You, my numbers are saying." I said, "You'll be lucky to hold on to Remuera," and your dad burst out laughing. And I yeah. said, "I'm sorry, but you will. You'll be lucky to hold on to it." Well, on the night, National lost Remuera and got it back. Doug Graham got it back with specials, and only then, only just got it back. Mm. That was up against someone like Judith Tizard for Labour, who I wouldn't say was the greatest candidate or the greatest political uh, motivating force out there in the world. It's just people like Roger Douglas. And when I door knocked here in Pakaranga, Howick, Bucklands Beach, everybody that saw the blue rosette, nah, not voting for you guys, voting for Labour, and I'd look down at my list and it would say they'd been members of the National Party. I said, for Labour? Well, not no, no, not for Labour, but for Roger Douglas.
5: Mm. You know, I can remember standing next to you and you having an absolute Donnybrook with Robert Muldoon over the over tax. I think it was a, a, a public meeting out in, in South Auckland somewhere. You know, he would get hundreds and hundreds of people there. And I can remember going there and you having an absolute Donnybrook with him over taxation. And you've never been afraid of having a Donnybrook over things that you believe in, have you?
9: No, and what was interesting, there was a a time of change coming. When Muldoon had been in his early years in power, you dared even suggest anything was wrong, or you'd be taken to by little old ladies at a national party with an umbrella who'd give you a good dusting. But the mood shifted as we realised that we had elected a government that wasn't a sort of a centre right and a and a sort of a reforming, open liberal democracy type party, but a we're going to control this. We're going to fix that. We're going to stop this. I mean, Muldoon would even try to solve industrial disputes on the ninth Floyd, call both parties in and say, right, you're going to take 3%. You're going to give this. You can have this many holidays and so on. And of course, everybody got what nobody wanted. And it was it, it, it was not an enduring solution. It didn't last sometimes weeks before they were bad at it. So when I first went to the National Party and got up and asked questions about it, I got booed. I got jeered. But what I detected over the course of a few years, the mood shift started to change. And by the time I was really taking him on over the 1982 land and income tax amendment, where he was saying to people that had bought land specifically for a purpose and then had chosen to sell it sometime later, oh, sorry, we're going to retrospectively take this law back and make you pay a capital gains tax on it, something that wasn't even in law when you did it all. And I remember going to a party conference in uh, the Michael Fowler Centre in Christchurch and I got up and I got a huge round of applause sort of saying it was a disgrace and labelling people uh, like Queen Street Farmers and the Greedy simply should be treated with the contempt that deserved. And that same speech four years ago would have given me an absolute run out of town and tarred and feathered, got a round of applause and Muldoon had literally by... Eighty three and certainly into eighty four, lost the plot altogether.
5: Well, he, the last three years of the Muldoon years, I think you know, McPhail and Gadsby, um, gags. <laughs> 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 yeah, good night, good night, Aussie. Yeah, we were in Aussie Malcolm's electorate. Now, we used, we used that, didn't we? We went and put up our own signs.
9: <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the funniest one about the Goodnight Aussie, because uh, just for your viewers that may not have remember, the, there was a picture of the beehive at the end of the show and it had all the little yellow windows with lights coming out of it and then they'd gradually click off one at a time. And just like in the TV show The Waltons, the kids would all call out good night and the yeah. dad would say, you know, good night, John Boy and good night, Mary Lou and so on. But in this case, it would be Muldoon saying good night to Ben Couch and <laughs> others. And one, the the cracker, I always remember it because Ozzy was a bit of a sycophant when it came to Muldoon. The, the light goes off, uh, and he says, uh, "Good good night, leader." And Muldoon says, "Ah, good night, Ozzy. And then there's a silence, and he says, "Oh, and Aussie? Uh, yes, leader. Uh, hands where I can see them." <laughs>
5: <laughs> but you know, we we put up those little signs all the way down Gilly's Ave, you know, um, ourselves. And people yes. thought it was the Labor Party that was doing it and it was us. We were going, <laughs> going around putting these little signs up saying, good night, Aussie, <laughs> all the way down Gilly's Ave. So people lined up to get queuing to get on the motorway. With I know.
9: It oh, was... Uh- It was, I think you're right, it was an era where we first saw the sort of, instead of the dull politics of people just went to a polling booth and that was it, there was a bit of fire in the belly of people.
5: Even the National Party wanted to see the back of Muldoon though, didn't we?
9: Well, (laughs) the vast bulk of the new breed did. What was interesting is that big crossover. Muldoon had stood in 75 to be a right-wing free market private enterprise policy because that's what was in our aims and objects. And then for nine years, practised the exact opposite. You couldn't get more opposite than what he actually practised. And then in 1984, Roger Douglas gets in. Well, longy, but Roger Douglas was controlling things. And for the first three years, it didn't continue, but at least for the first three years, they practised the antithesis of what any Labour Party person loved. And I got into Parliament in 1987, and this is hilarious, you get ranked as a newbie, you get ranked on your surname. And because I'm a Williamson, I was last. And so I got to sit right up on the Mason-Dixon line next to all the backbench Labour Party people. McCulley would have you believe it was on IQ, but it was actually on surname, the ranking. <laughs> and um, so I'm sitting up there next to all these Labour Party people. And then the first week we've got the address and reply speech where there's a speech from the throne and then all the members get up and give an address in reply to that. And Roger Douglas came down to the house, and I was just sitting at my bench writing some stuff, and he gave a speech. And in the end, I put my pen down, and I just was transfixed. And when he finished, all I could remember is his whole back bench was saying, you bastard, you're gone, never again. We're sick of this. And I'm sitting there. When he finished, I went, and I was clapping away and clapping (laughs) away, and then I slowed down because I realized that none of theirs were clapping. And none of ours were clapping. And Bill Birch called me out into the lobby and he says, What the hell was that? And I said, Well, I thought that was one of the best speeches I've ever listened to. And he said, There's a rule around this place, if you can't kick him, don't kiss him. And I said, Oh, okay. And he said, I don't want to ever hear you clapping the other side again. And I thought, Well, actually I will clap if I hear a bloody good speech. If it's I don't care who gives it if I agree with it and it's the right thing. Well, of course it was their side that I mean, they cut his throat within months of that election. Yeah.
5: yeah. And there was a lot of dancing around. Everybody was celebrating the end of Roger Douglas, but it it signalled a a kind of a a false government, really, that lurched from there to the 1990 bloodbath.
9: Look, if they had stayed with the direction of travel he was setting and what he was achieving with deregulation, with privatisation, et cetera, et cetera, with a rationalising of the tax system, we would have struggled in 1990 to have got elected and it was only because Lonnie pulled the pin and wanted the cup of tea and the breather and sacked Roger Douglas because I can tell you the, the reason they would have won is not so much from Labor electorates, but the Remueras and East Coast Bays and the Pacaranga electorates and the Fendeltons, mm-hmm. they actually loved what the guy was doing and I had to keep saying to people in my electorate, if you want Nomix to continue, you've got to vote national. And they said, what? And I said, that's right. And I actually did an article in the How and Can of Times, which was on the front page, and the editor thought I'd lost the plot. And I said, <laughs> if you want Nomix to continue, because his team won't allow it to continue, and lo and behold, a few months later, they cut his throat. And I was really pleased they did because my you know, hope that that was right may not have come true. It's a big mistake on behalf of the the, the left of the Labour Party because they could have stayed in power because they don't want to stay in power and keep doing the things that the centre-right loved. They hated it. Mm.
5: They, they just want to tax people all the time, don't they?
9: Well, it was the control. I mean, I, I think when I'm ever asked, what's the difference between the left and the right? And now, obviously, there's a million differences. But one is to do with what control you have over people's lives And the other is to see what control you don't have. I'm a big libertarian and a freedom person who just says, I'd rather have as little tax on anybody as I can have, but they pay for a lot of things themselves. I'd rather them manage their own savings. I would rather them manage their own destiny in life. But the left like the idea of block control, compulsory unionism, fix this, we'll do that, state housing delivery, and so on. The big difference is between how much governments control the population and how much freedom you give the population.
5: Let's just go back to Muldoon a bit. He did some good things though when he was in power. I mean you know the all of the you know gay electric cars that all of the the left wing want to shove down everybody's throats are all powered by his think big projects.
9: yeah, i I wouldn't ridicule his think big projects as much as some people do. I do think they were not done correctly in terms of proper contestability of who was the builder of it and getting good bids to do it. But the, the concept of getting some of those big projects that would safeguard ourselves against future shock, they weren't wrong. They, they weren't wrong, and, and uh, we're bearing the benefits of some of those projects now. But it was just flavour of the day to, to mock Think Big. They, they, they used to use the phrase Sink Pig instead of Think Big. Uh, to have a crack at Piggy Muldoon. But I was never that that anti it. I was anti the fact that the government was going to build them and the the government was going to control them. I'm a big fan of private partnerships, public-private partnerships or contestability of supply and and allowing those people to make a return on their investment. You'll get much better quality investment. You'll get much better uh, pricings and everything if it's not just uh, the public purse.
5: You've told me a story a few times, and I've had it confirmed from others, that when the Labor government was looking at purchasing or signing up to the Anzac frigates, Muldoon was on one of the select committees there and uh, had a bit of a uh, argument with, with an Australian admiral.
9: Well, let me give it to you, because I think it, it's just so crystal clear. Muldoon arrived a little bit late, Uh, It was after 2 o'clock. We had a 2 o'clock meeting, and I'm pretty sure he'd had a bit of a liquid lunch, and he was ready for a fight because there was a couple of sort of things Muldoon didn't like in life. It was military people and it was Australians, and he had both sitting across from him. (laughs) So he was ready for a bit of grump and a bit of poking the bear, and the worst thing was the Australian admiral opened up like a salesman. It was shocking. You know, fair do, dinky die, cobber sport, pal, our boats are the best in the world. There is no deny. And instead of saying, "Look, you've got some concerns. We'd like you to know, you know air them with us." We brought a whole stack of officials with us, and in the end, this vo- this voice, because Muldoon's voice was mag- magic. He just chainsaw cut through. Doesn't matter what hubbub, his voice just went through it like a chainsaw. And he goes, "But the greatest respect, Admiral, that's crap." <laughs> and oh, everyone's going and on. Oh, and what's you know? It was a panic stations, and uh, he says, "I've done my homework." The Danish frigates are better and they're cheaper. And the Dutch frigates, they're even way better and they're cheaper. Why would we want to buy your rubbish? And <laughs> the the old admiral, he was trying to get into the fighting mode. He's telling his officials to shut up. And he says, well, you're not right, you know, on a features and a cost performance basis and a dollar value. Uh, our boats are the best in the world. But even if you were right, and I'm not suggesting for a moment that you are, what I can tell you is that boats built in the Northern Hemisphere are totally inappropriate for Southern Hemisphere oceans. And Muldoon looked at him and went, eh? Like, what the hell does that mean? Like, the oceans in the Southern Hemisphere are different. Well, it turns out they are because the Earth is not a sphere. It's a pear shape. And yeah. the ocean wavelengths are about a metre and a half or something longer than the wa- wa- wavelengths of the oceans in the Northern Hemisphere. But Muldoon didn't know well, none of us knew it. And he said, Hey! And the, and the and the admiral thought he was. I got one over. He said, "That's right." And Muldoon said, "Quick as a flash." And I thought this was just the classic. He said, uh, "So what are you telling us here, Captain uh, Admiral?" He says, "What are you telling us here, Captain Cook? Came on the wrong ship." <laughs> 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 and that just brought the house down. And even the the, the cameraman that was there from television. He couldn't stop shaking to try and get some good footage because the camera was up on his shoulder, and he just, I mean, the room was just, and then Muldoon just put his jowls in his and his hands like that and just glared back, gotcha. And from <laughs> that point, it was all over over. He had won the debate straight outright.
5: When you got into Parliament, Muldoon had a little piece of advice for you, didn't
9: he? He had heaps of advice, you know, the old breathe through your nose and I remember up at the bloody tea and coffee table my first week there outside the caucus room and I was trying to find which was tea and coffee and he looked at me and said, ha, the only difference between Bellamy's tea and Bellamy's coffee is the tea's got something floating in it. <laughs> <laughs> but you, have, you need to tell me which one you've got in mind because there are plenty.
5: Oh, there's plenty. You know, he, he, That's the thing with Muldoon is everyone thought he was this grumpy, cantankerous, you know, curmudgeon of a bloke. And he was, but... He I cared very deeply about New Zealand. He just had the wrong skill set well, to do anything about it. Well, if it. we He's
9: go back to the, the the Captain Cook come on the wrong ship, I can tell you that when we were walking out of that big room, there was a big long table in a big room, he, yeah. he sort of sidled up beside me and he was a lot, lot, lot shorter than I am. And I remember him when he looked up at me and he said, always use the F word if you don't want it on the 6 o'clock news. <laughs> And I thought, you know, so he was always happy to give advice. He quite often gave me advice about things. He didn't like my right-wing politics. Of course he didn't. But he never personalised it. Well, I shouldn't say never. He he didn't often personalise. So I actually enjoyed trying to pick his brains when I could. He was nowhere near as bad as a lot of people have made him out to be, but I still wasn't a fan of his politics.
5: You had, what, what was your final count for years in Parliament? 30? 30. 30 years?
9: 30. It's a you, long get time, for right? you get less for murder. <laughs> you get less for murder. You get a hell of less for murder, actually. That's what they say
5: about marriage, isn't it? It's not a, <laughs> it, it's not a word. It's a sentence. Yes. <laughs>
6: um,
9: I, yes. I like the one a man who remarries doesn't deserve to have lost his first wife.
5: <laughs> <laughs> In that time, you've seen some good politicians. You've seen some ugly politicians. You've seen some dreadful politicians. Who stands out for you as perhaps your number one politician? You can't include yourself in this one, Morris. Who do you think oh, out of that thirty really, years of being really in parliament? Who's your number one?
9: Well, I—I I mean, I just—I don't really care for the the handsome or the flamboyant or the popular. For me, it's the person who is a policy driver of things that make a difference that will grow the economy that will get people into jobs. There can be no doubt that Roger Douglas and followed very quickly as an almost duplicate Ruth Richardson are the two politicians that I've looked on, you know, in in awe over my years there, both people dedicated to growing the economy. Because one of the things that I learned in politics, actually, it's a quote from Maggie Thatcher, and you know I'm not religious, but she quoted the Bible and she said the good Samaritan didn't do what he did just because he was good. He also had the money. And the reason she gave that quote is the whole lot of people that walk past this poor Samarian lying in the gutter, starving with no clothes and no shelter, the vast bulk of them had no money themselves to help him. And when the good Samaritan walked by, he's got heaps of dollars and camels and a house and a mansion. So that's the same thing with the economy. You know, You want a better Education system, you want a better health delivery system, you want, you know, you even want a good welfare state to be a hand up, not a hand out. But you can't do any of those if you're poor. And so, what Roger Douglas and Ruth said about was breaking the old paradigms where we'd been stuck in a rut, subsidizing farming. I guess that's one of my most amazing memories of politics. Mm. Farmers were the greatest advocates of not all this open market and fighting and protest at Parliament. And it was evil and it was wrong. And what Roger Douglas did caused so much dislocation to farming. I tell you, there is no bigger group on the planet now that want free market, private enterprise, open trade, no subsidies than the farmers. Yeah. They are the greatest free market traders and going and good on them. And they know that if you're a good farmer and you're efficient and you're doing well, you can make a bloody good income. And if you're a hopeless farmer doing poorly and getting very bad production off your land, you don't deserve to stay there. And uh I just think having the courage from within a I, I guess Roger Douglas could do it because no one in the National Party could have you'd have never got the numbers we're always too conservative about change or, oh, that's going to be too difficult. I don't think we could sell that. He he just bolted through with stuff, just broke all the barriers, banged it in his own party, hated it. His own members just couldn't stand it. But I think New Zealand would be a much poorer place if it hadn't been for the 84 to 87 Roger Douglas period and the 90 to 93 Ruth Richardson period.
5: Yeah. What about dead-set useless MPs. Who's your number one dead-set useless MP that they should never have even drawn breath? Oh, I mean, that's it's, it's tough, isn't it? It's really hard. There's a hard.
9: whole lot that you'd say come into that category. I, I guess it's the ones, I'm, I'm not going to try and name one because I could, but I don't know which one I would give. It's those that came there, either that's the best job they've ever had and they couldn't earn anything better outside so they stayed on. And they literally just achieved nothing. There are people that have left Parliament. And when I did my valedictory, I got a big list. I thought, bugger I'm going to stick this up in the news media. And from everything I'd done to deregulating the transport sector and aviation to bringing in the photo licence, I had a list that just went on and on and on and on and bringing in smart gates for, this, for the border so that you could walk through without having to do with a customs officer and so on. But I can tell you I can name a heap of people that got there, spent a big time, did nothing, and then left again. And when you say, well, give us one thing you achieved. Um, Well, I don't know. I made sure we kept the cups clean at Bellamy's. Uh, You shouldn't be there there if you can't get some runs on the board and then go, I, I stayed too long. I have no doubt in my mind that I stayed at least a couple of terms too long, I shouldn't have stayed the length I did. And any advice I've got to anybody else, don't stay too long because you'll regret it.
5: So what you'd say is get in, cause a ruckus, do something, get out.
9: Yeah. You know, I'm quite keen on maybe term limits. I, I think it's quite a good idea to say, I mean, I don't know what to set it at, but maybe, what, three years times, say four terms. So that's 12 years. If you can't make a difference in 12 years, then you can't make a difference.
5: And it would make people more strategic about when they choose to go into Parliament too because you don't want to go in um, when your party's going out. Yeah.
9: You know? yeah, although that's a little bit harder to manage because, you know, getting selected for a major party is very difficult. It's not necessarily – I've seen selection after selection where the top talent didn't get through – but because they were good friends of the electorate chairman and had good barbecues or whatever. Uh, and so you can't just say, oh, well, I'm going to stand and I'll get selected in uh, this particular term and then I'll go through and do these three years as a minister in the government. But it's certainly how you should try to plan it and then see if you can execute the plan.
5: I've been talking about a lot about uh, the increased polarisation that we have in politics in particular in the United States, but in New Zealand as well. And it kind of sort of came in around the end of the Muldoon era with Clark, who was always talking about Tories and that lot over there, and there was the nastiness of Michael Cullen. Um, Whilst privately he might have been jocular and friendly and all that, when it came to actually speaking out loud in Parliament, he was quite nasty. Do you think that this is a positive influence in, in politics to have this hyper-polarisation that we've got now where you can't even talk to anybody on the other side because you're seen as a traitor or a, or a class traitor or something like that?
9: No, no, I don't. I think it's dreadful. And I can tell you I spent many a night having a chat to Roger Douglas and he gave me quite a lot of advice and he was a minister in a government on the other side. Uh, It's because I felt I was in tune with the things he was wanting to do, and he felt I was in tune with him. But now it's got, I'll tell you what's got worse, is the whole personality culture thing. Mm. Now, for example, racism is a tag. It doesn't matter what you say or do. If someone doesn't like it, they're quick to grab, oh, you're a racist. And um, I'll give you an example. At the council one day, I was expressing my concern that, we could not put rates up above inflation because people had been hammered so much for so many years with rate increases, we needed to put a lid on it. And I had a councillor from another part of Auckland say, well, I don't hear about rates being a concern and no one I speak to is worried about rates going up. And I thought to myself, that's quite the opposite of what I hear in Howick. So I went online immediately, just sitting at the meeting and had a look at stats and i brought down a graph of home ownership by local board. And if you go to the very north and the very south, that is Rodney uh, or Franklin, it's very high, very big percentage of people own their own homes. Mm -hmm. And if you come into the Takapunas or Mission Bay through to Howick and Bucklands Beach, it's in the high 70s or the 80s. But there are parts of South Auckland where home ownership is down in the low 30s. So if you were the candidate or the, the, the ward councillor in that area, more than two out of every three people you meet don't pay rates. Now, And now, of course they do, but it's through a mechanism called rent that they don't see, so they don't get a rate increase come in the mail. So I took a, a call and made that point that there were parts of Auckland where there was very big home ownership and rate increases, Really hurt the the homeowner, and there were other parts of Auckland where the people that lived in the houses didn't own them. And the very first call straight out was, "That's racist." Well, it's and fact. I thought I didn't raise anybody's race. I don't think race has got anything to do with it. It's just it's the who owns a home. Well, there's a, there are sometimes you can prove why they're wrong. I mean, every time it'll be opinions mainly. But I'll mm. give you one area where I can prove that the claim of racism was wrong. In the mayoralty election, Wayne Brown beat Afeso Collins by 50,000, 60,000 votes. Against all the predictions of the media. Collins immediately went public and said, oh, the only reason I didn't get elected because the voters of Auckland are racist, and it was racist because I'm a Pacific Islander that I didn't get to be the mayor. And so again, I got my trusty computer out, whipped up every ward, and I looked at those wards where there were Pacific Island candidate standing for council. In just about every case, they got thousands more vote than Afeso got in the same ward. Right, Filipina got 6,500 more votes for the ward councillor from the exact same voters than Afeso got. So if it was anti-Pacific Island, how come they voted for Al Filipina but not for him? And so that proves that the vote wasn't racist. It was they had decided he wasn't the person They wanted to be mayor. And I see that in the parliament now, if you attack a a female member of the House and say, Mm. you know, the minister's hopeless and she's flailing, you're immediately labeled a misogynist. But you would do the same thing. I would certainly do the same thing if it was a bloke. If the bloke was a failing minister who was incompetent and running the place into the ground, I would do the exact same attack on them as it. But the moment you do it because it's a female, oh, you're a misogynist. And if you did it to a Maori minister, oh, you're a racist. But
5: or, but or you're that or you're a racist misogynist in the case of Kerry Allen. Instead of addressing her behaviour of you know drunk driving and absconding from police and all the, all the rest of the revelations that have come out this week from the police who involved in you know, the dog handler and all of that, it's appalling behaviour. But if you criticise her, there's been you know multiple uh, opinion pieces in the Herald on staff you've had all these ministers come out and say, oh, no, it's dreadful. They're just attacking Kerry Allen because she's a Wahini Maori. And, they're not see, ad- and it's rubbish. My view rubbish.
9: is the real test is if a white bloke had crashed a ministerial car into another car, left the scene, got found in the park, police dogs trapped you back, and you were over the limit, would you go after them the same as we went after Kerry Allen? The answer is, of course, There'd be no difference. It would be to do with their actions, what they had done, their behaviour and so on. But the, there is this, it, it, it's a wonderful, the weaponizing of mental health. I've never seen it up until now. I mean, let me tell you how one-sided it can be. We we had a member in our caucus called Nick Smith, and he had a bit of a sort of a meltdown in 2002, and had to be sent home and have a bit of rest and recuperation and, because he'd had a bit of a mental health issue. When he got back to Parliament, Trevor Mallard and people like Grant Robertson, they led the choir with lines like, you're taking your pills today, Nick? How's the Lupo going today? Have the men in white coats dropped you off? And all this sort of stuff. It went on and on. They were relentless. They're the same people who are now saying, you mustn't touch this because someone with mental health should be left alone. Now, I want to put my case here. I think a person that has got a mental health issue should be left alone. But if they that is if they vacate the battlefield. Mm. If you leave the battlefield, you should never touch them. It should be finished. But if they come back into the battlefield... Get ready to fire salvos at you, as Kerry Allen was doing, launching her law and order policy and answering questions to the media and so on. And the Prime Minister saying it wasn't even a mental health break. She'd taken time off to look after her kids in a school holiday. You can't then weaponize mental health when it's convenient. You want to vacate the battlefield? I won't say a word. I'll never mention it. You want to stay fighting, but then say, but you can't touch me because then that would be attacking a Wahini Mari or its. Weaponizing mental health. You can only have it one way or the other, but this lot want to have it both ways.
5: Speaking of both ways, that's what we've got in Auckland, isn't it, with rates increases?
9: Yeah. Um I, I want to put a bit of a, a plea to the to your listeners on this one. So many people think that local government is a bit like central government and that your prime minister is the same as a mayor, but there's a huge difference. When you get to be Prime Minister, you are made Prime Minister by the Governor-General because you can assure the, the Governor-General that you have a majority of the votes in the Parliament. Yep. You don't get to be PM if you haven't got them. And that's what our confidence and supply, and he says, are you sure that you could withstand a confidence and a supply motion? Yes. Okay, I now declare you Prime Minister. But that was just a person. When Chris Hipkins stand at the coming election, he's not standing as Prime Minister. He's standing in Rimutaka as the candidate for the Labour Party in Rimutaka. yeah, But in council, the mayor is only one vote out of 21. Yeah. There is no party whip. There is no everybody follows one side or the other. And so every time we go to the governing body, I am literally confused as hell as where the vote will go and have been never surprised to find that some people I thought were on the other side voting yes, and I thought they were a no, and others that said no or yes. And at the end I thought, bloody hell, I don't know how you make this work because I thought there was a lay-down Mazea case for selling Auckland Airport shares. Yep. Uh, they are costing us a fortune in the debt that we would be able to relieve if we sold them. We'd be, uh, you know, if we could sell the whole 2.2 billion dollars we'd be saving ourselves like 120, maybe 130 million a year in debt servicing. And what we would be giving away is, well, up to now, three years of no dividend, but in very best of times, maybe 20 or 30 million. And I don't know any person, and I don't know any household, I don't know any family, that if their mortgage was killing them and the cost of servicing it, but they found a big chunk of shares which weren't returning any great return in the cupboard, They'd whip them in and sell them and reduce their mortgage in a heartbeat. But it turned out that there was nowhere near a 50% majority for selling the shares. And we had people like Al Filipina say the Pacific Islanders of Auckland use that airport as their one link to the Pacific Islands, and I don't want it sold.
5: Hang on. If it was sold... Were they, to, were they going to knock down all the buildings, roll it all up and move it somewhere else? Or was it going to still be there? As There look? is
9: there is a school of thought that there'd be a big barge come through the Manukau heads. The airport would be slid over onto the barge and you would see the Auckland Airport disappearing out through the Manukau heads. Well, first of all, there is a big... I, I can remember doing some of this because I was Minister for Foreign uh, Ownership stuff. There is big restrictions on foreigners buying the airport. So that, that rules that out. But secondly... You know, there are private sector people today buying shares in Auckland Airport. They're tradable on the market. And I keep thinking, I just, and if they were returning a way better return than we were paying on our debt for that same amount of money, you'd say, well, you we wouldn't sit this is a gold mine. Why would you get rid of them? But the exact opposite was true. And even when we got advice in from financial experts that said, because I use this quote, even the good times are bad. Even the best of times of the, of the best dividend you could label compared to the biggest amount of debt servicing you've got, even in those best times, we're still down the negative tube a lot. But in the worst of times, we're down the gogler like you wouldn't believe. But it, it was one of those, the man just couldn't get the numbers. And I just thought, what is going Where, where Common sense has gone out the window here.
5: Well, and, what's your famous line? Every, everyone wants to go to heaven.
9: Yeah, but nobody wants to die. And that's the same and same again. in fact, um, there were we I, I got together with the finance people and we wrote a really good uh, Excel app and it had these six panels that you when you opened the file and you could slide these sliders for how much you wanted to reduce spending, how yeah. much you wanted to increase debt, what you wanted to do with selling of the airport shares and the very last slider worked itself It was automatic. what would that mean your rates had to be? If you hit the button of no mitigation at all, that is you left things as are, 22.5% would be your rate increase. And so I said to people, well, tell me what slider you want to go up. Oh, well, we should take on some more debt. And I said, well, we've got $12 billion. That's $12,000 million of debt already. We're spending $1.5 million a day on servicing that debt. You really want to take on more? You want to put more on the credit card when it's explodingly overloaded? Yep. So we took it up, but there was a couple of lines on the graph which said, if you go beyond this, you go beyond your debt to revenue ratio that the rating agency says acceptable, and you'll get a credit downgrade, and that means you'll pay a lot more for your interest rates and so on. Okay. Okay. Well, you don't want to go above that, surely. No, 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 just to wear that, just take the slider just to there, yeah? Okay. Now, you want to take some costs out, right? Well, we let's get rid of, we're paying for early childhood care centres, which is certainly not something council should be, oh, no, 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 the, 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 the Kauri kids, early childhood, they're really important for us. I said, look, they're very important. I'm not saying early childhood centres are not important. Mm. They're not the role of council. They're just not the role of council. We've got a healthy eatings program with staff that work on it. We've got a smoking cessation program that that staff are working on. Isn't and it? Again, I'm a government. big fan.
2: I know it's I don't really look that-
9: like I know I don't look like I am, but I'm a big fan of healthy eating program, but not for the council. And yeah. to try to win those debates was just mind numbing. So, now, it's-
5: how are you getting on battling the bureaucrats? You know, you you're in charge of the the so-called razor gang, looking yeah. trying to look at line by line items, and the, how are you getting on? A getting information out of these people. And well, that B, was the actually first struggle. Identifying what you could cut.
9: That was the first struggle uh, to get the information. Was uh, no, you can't have it. And I said, I have to get access to the granular data. They said, no, no, we'll, we'll give you reports which show how we're going. Fine. I said, no, no, no. I can remember being on the Cabinet Expenditure Control Committee in the early 90s. We bought every government department in and we went line by line. What is this? What would happen if we only spent half that much? What would happen if we didn't spend any at all on it? What would happen if we put it out to the private sector and got them to do it for a lower rate? Uh, and we found all sorts of... Uh, of very poor quality spending and fat in the system that we could rip out of it by doing that forensic detail. But the, the council bureaucracy said, no, no, you're trying to cross the line between governance and management. Our role is to do that work and to put recommendations to you. Now, I'm a big fan of keeping a distinct line between governance and management, but you can't do a role in the governance side of a business if you don't know what questions to ask. You don't know what to ask about what's happening in parks. Why has it gone that much? Where did that growth come from? Why have we doubled the spending on that area of things? And we didn't know that. And I couldn't find other councillors that had been there for a long term that knew it. So I just fought a fight. I sort of got really quite obnoxious about it and said, if I'm here to do a job, I've got to get access to the granular data. Just as a little interesting by the side, by time in the states, there was about nine states that I know of, probably more, but I know of, who published to the web their entire granular state spending budget. So any person can go and log on, download big CSV files or Excel files and get the absolute granular spending for the state government. And so I wanted the council to give me that granular data and they said oh well it's too big it's it's hundreds of thousands of records you wouldn't be able to do anything with it and I just said look stop getting me so excited you give me 800,000 records that's the most that uh, that you know that's more that's the most fun I've ever had with my clothes on is to get that sort of number of records and do some work with it and I've been using sort of SQL server and pivot tables and pivot charts and dragging stuff up and summarizing them into Dashboards and then looking at what percentages changes and putting deflators like inflation or population growth to try and find out. And we've found out a lot so far. But the next barrier came with you can't do that because it's not in the long term plan. And again, I want to get your listeners very aware of how much of a straitjacket uh, local authorities have on them. They've got to producer, a, a plan that's a 10 year long term plan. And I promise you that the way the world works, you can't even plan three years out without knowing something's going to come along and disrupt things or turn them upside down. Mm. But then you can't do anything that's outside of that three-year plan. Now, the good news is we got the annual budget done, 11% increase in rates, which is the biggest ever, although both Brown and I got elected on we were going to bring rates down. We just couldn't get those numbers. Mm. We mitigated them a bit by getting rid of a few of the ridiculous targeted rates that are not being used as a natural environment, any NETR, natural environment targeted rate and a WQTR, water quality targeted rate. And we got those out and we used the money from those to bring the, the residential uh, rate increase to 7.7. But 7.7 is still a disgrace and we should be ashamed of it. And what now we've started on is the work on redoing, redoing the long-term plan and I want to ensure that we take away that straitjacket of you've got to work within this narrow confines and you've got to only do this and get a long-term plan, which is about delivering of outcomes, but you've got the right to change the policy settings uh, as you go in order to achieve those outcomes.
5: So you've got an impossible task. The, the, the voters have elected you to, to do this and you can't actually do it because...
9: You don't have the numbers. The structure, you never have the, numbers.
5: the structure, and the systems in place in Auckland Council mean yeah. that it's it's almost impossible to get there. And so, now, when we, I
9: said there's no whip, there is a few Labour members of uh, the council. They stood on Labour Party billboards and platforms, and I mean, Josephine Bartley and uh, Shane Henderson, and uh, there's this. I, I can't remember Lotto fully. In fact, two of our councillors, two of them, Lotto Fully and Kieran Leone, are the next two on the Labour Party list to go into Parliament. If there were a couple of deaths or a couple of resignations or something in Labour, two of our councillors would be the next two off the list. So there is a Labour Party group, but the National Party, in its infinite wisdom, bless its little heart, have never been prepared to allow candidates to stand for local body under the banner of the National Party.
5: I've never been able to fathom that, and it's a legacy that just For some reason, the National Party can't get past.
9: Well, I'll tell you a funny story because you will love this. Um, At Premier House in in 2015, I think it was, it was straight after the, no, it must have been 14, after the 2013 local body election, I got up and asked uh, the party president at that stage and I wanted to make it really for specific. I said, why is it? that in every comparable jurisdiction, you know, every Western world comparable country that we can name. So I didn't want to include Burkina Faso and the Horn of Africa, but I did want to include Canada and America and Britain and France and Germany and Australia. Why is it in every one of those comparable nations, they stand candidates right down the ballot? In fact, where I was in the States, there were people standing for the local school board with Democrat and Republican written after their names. And the answer I got was terribly unsatisfactory. It was, well, we never have. And I thought, and I, I remember I spoke to Boris Johnson in London many years ago. Many, I was there on a ministerial trip and I got to meet him. And I said to him, you know, did you get to be the mayor of London because you stood as a Conservative candidate? for the Conservative Party. And he said, well, how else do you think I'd get to be mayor? And I said, so you'd never get to be mayor as an independent? He said, you will have a dog show. You wouldn't even begin to start to do it. He said, I was proud to be a Conservative candidate and I got there elected based on my party. And, I, and he said, well, why don't you do the same and stand for your party for the mayoralty of all? I said, well, we're not allowed to. The party won't do it. And I've never understood to this day, if you can get somebody on a show one day and from the National Party to ask them, why do you not? And um, as I said, the Greens do it. Tory Farnow is a Green and um, the, the Labour Party certainly do it. Gough, um, I, I guess they do a little bit of a jiggery-pokery and he said he wasn't good Labour even though he just come from being the Labour leader. But but others did stand under the banner. I think there's five or six of them on the council that are Labour. But there's no majority for any one direction of travel.
5: And, and therein lies the problem.
9: Yeah, that's the
5: problem. Just before we finish up, Morris, you've spent a bit of time in the United States um, in your diplomatic role when you finished up your parliamentary career. How do you see things panning out in the United States where we're lurching between Trump and Biden and it looks like Trump again, possibly? It looks like it's a dreadful, dreadful, awful position that the United States is in.
9: It's a tragic scenario playing out because the polarisation is even way worse than here. You you are either for Trump or you're evil. You're either against Trump or you're a lunatic. And whereas Trump's got some real big bloody bumps on his record, he actually did some good things. He got a lot of deregulation under control. He got business up and running again. He got smacked by COVID and he mishandled COVID badly. But you just think... Why is there not sort of some sort of centrist view of the world which says if you're doing things that make the economy better and grow the business and keep people employed, then I'm not going to get into the personalities and the ad hominem attacks, which they're seriously bad up there. And um, it is, it's is—it's really quite worrying. I, I heard people on both sides, both channels. There were lots of television and radio channels And you would never listen to one for more than five minutes without saying, I can't stand this anymore. So you go to the other one, it would be just as bad from the other side. And they would be laying labels and blames of, you know, you were responsible for child. I mean, Hillary Clinton got accused of running a child trafficking operation from the bottom of a pizza hut in Illinois or something. You think, Mm. who did that? Where did it come from? No, There was no substance to it. But there were people all the way, you know, so you don't care if a Previous person has been running a child trafficking ring and so on. It's, it was just so bitter, and I don't know how they get out of it. And, and social media has made it just 10 times worse. There are people up there with quite big influencer accounts that write just ghastly stuff about individuals, be it true or not. And instead of arguing the case, as I would much rather they'd argued about you've wrecked the economy by seeing you know unemployment go to 9% and interest rates go to 21% and our trade has fallen apart and we're manufacturing is bottom i'm i'm really keen to have arguments or our standards in education are slipping and kids are not attending school and they're not passing enough grades or our hospitals are not caring for sick people i don't want the debate to be you know about the personality stuff and the, uh, the ad hominem attacks But it's really extreme up there. And as I said, or maybe we'd talk before you became on air, the problem I know is a a number of top-notch people, articulate, capable, successful business people who Mm. would absolutely make a great job of putting the economy on the right track and running the place, every time I raised it with them, they started laughing and said, I wouldn't have a bar of it. And I said, why not? And they said, well, first of all, I pay more in tax in a week than I'd earn. Secondly, uh, my private life, because back at university, I might have employed a Mexican housekeeper and didn't pay her the minimum wage. They would dragged that out. You'd be ripped and torn to pieces for it uh, and have to try to account for everything. So you've got to be sort of cleaner than the, the desert sort of snow, which doesn't exist. And you've got... It's it's just a shame because it's a wonderful country in so many other regards. I love America in some regards, and some of it's so ugly it's not funny.
5: Well, you've also got the case where the media and the deep state, in particular the FBI, are colluding to influence the political debate. We had the, the, the false steel dossier, the Russia, Russia, yeah. Russia hoax. Yeah. And then you had the Hunter Biden laptop that all of these Doesn't intelligence experts all Doesn't came out touched. and said, said it, was, it was a Russian um, disinformation. Pr- all of that was false, total no, no. lies that the media and social media and the intelligence community all worked in conjunction to keep it quiet or to broadcast it if it suited their agenda.
9: The only problem with your debate is it's not only one-sided. I mean... Yeah. Trump lost the election. There's no question of it. Um, big chunk of the turnout, the people there were just turning out that had never voted before because they wanted to get rid of him. You've got to have a, a, a democracy where you accept that you – I mean, that's the thing I love about New Zealand because I've been on the bad end and the good end. Yeah. When you're pressed up against the window of your beehive office and you see the the furniture movers taking your boxes out – and the new lot walking in, and they're talking to all your all your bureaucrats that had made out they were your friends for the last six or nine years, <laughs> and now they were their friends and not yours. Uh, it's something Warren Cooper told me. Uh, he was a minister in the Muldoon mm. government and a bit of a dry old bloke, but he said to me, Morris, he said, uh, you'll be a minister very soon, because this was when we first got in there. He said, you'll be a minister very soon. Best piece of advice I get, be very careful to know that you're a rooster today and a feather duster tomorrow around this place, and that all the people that will circle around you to make out there your friends, the day that you are out of here, you will not have the phone ring. No one will care about you, you know, and this. So he said, friends are people you have to your place for a barbecue or come around to listen to some deep purple music or whatever. Mm-hmm. But but these people are work colleagues. You've got to show some respect and you've got to work with them. But know that the day after an election, they'll be in that other side's office saying, looking forward to working with you. Happy to have you on board. The exact same phrase that I've been using, had you won the election.
5: Yeah, exactly. And on that note, Maurice, you're you're not still not a feather duster yet. You've got a fair <laughs> few years
9: left in your so. maybe just a disc cloth at this point.
5: Yeah, I look. I look forward to talking to you again about some council stuff when uh, would, would when something to. comes to head. Thank love you very to. much for coming on the crunch. Right, Morris and I could have talked for hours. He certainly has been round the traps and is one of the best entertainers in New Zealand politics. As he said, he's delivered many reforms while he was in Parliament, and he's now attacking the bureaucracy at Auckland Council, trying to hold them to account for the wasteful spending, and he's totally appalled as am I at the polarisation that has occurred in our politics here and overseas. People are
1: struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really
2: look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's being ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open,
3: democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand.
4: What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated, and you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this
8: could end up.
0: You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio.
5: John Brash is the former leader of two political parties, National and ACT. He is also the former governor of the Reserve Bank and one of the architects of our GST system. He's with me now to discuss the emergence of GST and the changes to it as a political football and explain to us why we mustn't
8: change GST in any way, shape or form. Right now, free speech is under heavy attack in New Zealand, with the government constantly devising new ways to enforce censorship. To revive honest media and support RCR, join our Foundation membership club today. To learn more, visit members.
5: With me now is Don Brash, former leader of the National Party, former leader of the Act Party, former Governor of the Reserve Bank, and an expert on GST and taxation. And we're going to talk, Don, about all of this rush in this current election campaign for several of the parties to outbid each other talking about creating exemptions for food and fruit and vegetables, et cetera, uh, on GST. And you're aghast at this idea, aren't you?
4: That's right. I think it's a crazy idea.
5: Why do you think it's crazy?
4: Well, let me go back a little bit. Um, I have had the background that you mentioned. The other thing which may be relevant is that when the fourth Labour government was in power, Roger Douglas, Minister of Finance, he asked me to chair the committee which would design the GST. It was way back in 85. Mm. And he said, Look, uh, I've heard horror stories from the UK where small companies have been crucified by the impact of implementing a VAT, which is the same as the GST, essentially. Mm -hmm. And he said, I want you to design a tax which minimizes the compliance costs for small businesses. He said, big businesses can handle any complexity. they have computerized systems. He said, but small businesses can't. So design a tax which minimizes compliance costs for small businesses. And, of course, it took no genius to work out at all that, The best way of doing that is having one rate of GST applying to everything. And uh, that's the system New Zealand adopted. It was adopted here in New Zealand. Uh, I think the only other country in the world which has a clean GST system like we have in New Zealand is Singapore, predictably. Singapore tends to do most things (laughs) which are fairly rational. Um, But other countries have enormous compliance costs of, of having GST not on some preferred issues. So I guess my background is uh, I start from a bias in favor of having no exemptions at all. Mm -hmm. And I think if you ask the average business person at any level of business, they would strongly support no exceptions, no exemptions at all. So uh, that's where my starting point is. Um, If you say, let's uh, exempt fruit and vegetables from GST. Yeah. We have difficulty deciding what is a fruit and vegetable. Now, that sounds pretty straightforward, but what about uh, retailers who sell pineapple in small squares? Is that fresh fruit or is it processed fruit? Yeah. Are you going to exempt processed fruit or, or where do you draw the boundary? So that those boundary issues, which are, are very difficult to start with.
5: Well, <clears throat> I was living in Australia when they implemented GST in Australia. And uh, there was all sorts of crazy scenarios that were concocted because they did exempt uh, food and fruit and vegetables and those sorts of things. And you had these debates where they said, "Well, you can go and buy a chicken, you know, uh, uh, a frozen chicken uh, from the supermarket that doesn't have GST on it. But if you if the supermarket provided cooked chickens, like every supermarket does in Australia and New Zealand." Then that did attract GST, but then there was a further debate on which components of the was the chicken, uh, you know, GST exempt, but it was the power and the labour and the packaging and all of those sorts of things that made that a cooked chicken. Uh, they had to do the GST components on those. It was just there was ludicrous example. There was another example um, that was used: if you've got uh, GST off lettuce. Does that mean it's off the lettuce that's in a Big Mac and McDonald's or because it's now shredded, it's no longer the lettuce, it's now a shredded lettuce and so do we have to do GST on the labour for shredding it and then packaging and then putting it into the – and that seems ludicrous to try and go down that path.
4: Yes, and and, uh, that's a major reason for having only a single rate of GST and having no exemptions on where it applies. I mean, some countries have a nightmare. You mentioned Australia. Even worse is India. India has four different rates of GST and a whole range of exemptions as well. And frankly, it is a nightmare. Uh, Compliance costs of of catching this tax, collecting this tax is is very, very high. So on on compliance costs alone, exempting a small range of things is, is a serious mistake. Uh, and, and that's just uh, one of the arguments against it. There are other arguments, of course, which are also very powerful. If you exempt fruit and vegetables, why other kinds of foods? And as you point out, some political parties are saying exempt all food. Well, if all food, what about doctors' bills? What about mm. books? What about children's footwear? Uh, what about um, children's clothing, indeed? I mean, a whole range of stuff to have. Um, the argument can be made quite strongly they should be exempt too
5: well i mean it never never stops and really just is this a ploy maybe from new zealand first from the labor party from the maori party to maybe enrich some lobbyists because it seems to me that the lobbyists are the ones who who gain everything and the end user the the customer that this is supposed to help sort of their needs get pushed by the wayside
4: that that's right. I mean, it, it's a it's a yeah. I suspect it's also a benefit to computer companies which want to computerize the whole system in some way. But uh, I mean, it, it's 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 a nonsense. The other point, which I think important for those political parties on the left which are arguing for this, the main beneficiaries of this exemption would be those on high incomes. Uh, why? Because. It's people who are high incomes who spend a lot of money on, for example, pineapple and and high-quality, high-expensive, high-expense, highly-priced fruit and vegetables. If you're a low-income, you're buying potatoes and bananas mm. and not much too much else. So in terms of dollar benefit, more goes to middle and high-income people that you're not especially trying to, trying to help than it does to low-income people. You give away a huge chunk of revenue, and it's mostly going to people that you know have, have no particular interest in trying to help.
5: Now you've consulted on GST to several countries, haven't you? Uh, yes, um, two in
4: particular. Um, uh, the Bahamas was one country. Uh, Bahamas is an interesting case because uh, they basically have no income tax. Right. And most of their tax revenue was collected from very high import duties. And they were very keen to join the World Trade Organization. And the World Trade Organization said, you can't join with those kind of very, very high import duties. Mm. So they're looking around for a new kind of tax uh, without introducing income tax. So they suggested they should have a uh, value-added tax or a GST. And... Um, uh, at the time, I think New Zealand was very keen to get uh United Nations vote from the Bahamas in support of our membership of the Security Council. Yeah, And, and John Key bumped into the Prime Minister of the Bahamas at the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting and said, look, we can help you with implementing your GST. So uh, I and one other guy were sent off to the Bahamas.
5: And uh, it sounds like a terrible lark. Uh, sorry. having to, being sent off to the Bahamas,' it's, it's not like Alcatraz, is it, though? <laughs> no,
4: quite right. Uh, I uh, went three times in total, and the other guy went only once because I had no other commitments very strongly at the time in New Zealand. Mm. But the, the, the big thing we did for, for the Bahamas was to say no exemptions. And I think that's what they did.
7: Yeah.
4: But once a year I get a, an email from a, a guy who runs a supermarket and says, thank heavens you uh, persuaded the government to have no exemptions, because otherwise it would be a nightmare.
5: So the, these political parties, New Zealand First, the Maori Party, and it's rumoured the Labour Party is going to push for GST coming off fruit and vegetables or basic foods. Often in politics you see grand promises that are going to deliver X, Y, and Z to the voter. And this, I, I consider this to be one of those where there's these grand promises that it's going to make f- food more affordable, it's going to make uh, it easier for budgeting, it's going to a whole lot of reasons. But these aren't supported by any evidence, are they, that if you do exempt fruit and vegetables, that it lowers the price. In your experience, both as a Reserve Bank governor and also, as a you know consultant, have you ever seen any evidence that lowering taxes on these sorts of things leads to a an increase in consumption of those things, because theoretically we're trying to signal it's a good thing to happen, or B, it's a benefit to the end user, or does it just enrich their supermarket chains?
4: No, I can't honestly say I've I've been I would have commented on that, Cam. Uh, because basically, in both the case of the Bahamas and the other country I was involved in was Saudi Arabia, mm. in both cases, I was involved before the tax was put in place yeah. i haven 't been back to see what the situation is uh now but but you 're quite right uh simply removing a tax doesn 't guarantee that every consumer's or all consumers are going to get the benefit of that production of tax some of the of the benefit will go to the supermarkets i 've got no doubt
7: mm.
4: so yeah. uh, but but, as I say, quite apart from with the supermarkets captured if most of the benefit in terms of dollars is captured by people higher up the income stream uh higher up the income uh, distribution uh you're not actually helping the people you supposedly are trying to help
5: well I and mean, that's the, that's the key thing isn't it we often hear when I mean, we had the electricity reforms that were going to lower um electricity prices we haven't seen any benefits of that we had the super city which was supposedly going to Get give us more cost-effective outcomes on the basis of rates in Auckland. We haven't seen that. We've seen uh, this government propose splitting the health system into a race-based system on one side and everybody else on the other, and we're not seeing any benefits from it. Is this a prob- perennial problem of over-promising and under-delivering politicians? And this GST uh, promise is just another one of those boondoggles to, to get some votes and then we'll see what happens.
4: I think it's particularly the situation now we have MMP cam. Mm. Uh, in the old days, when you had two main parties, uh, one party was going to have to deliver on their promises. Uh, with MMP, small parties can promise what they like. Sounds very attractive, they get some votes. But of course, by definition, they're in coalition with another party, a larger party. Mm. And that party says, look, I'm sorry. Uh, I won't mention names, but I'm sorry, Winston, we can't exempt food because if we did that, uh, we'd have to find the revenue somewhere else and that's a large chunk of revenue we haven't got. The budget's already in deficit, so we can't do it. So the the danger in MMP in this situation is that small parties can, in fact, make potentially extravagant promises, uh, knowing full well that they won't actually have to deliver on them because the larger party won't won't go along with them. So uh, I guess the degree of responsibility which different parties have varies, obviously. Mm. Some of the larger parties who seem almost certain to be in in government if there's a change of government, like ACT, for example, ACT can't afford to make too many outrageous promises because they're likely to be a significant component in a centre-right party,
7: Mm.
4: a centre-right government. But if you're a very small party... Uh, And just scratching for 5%, you can afford to make extravagant promises, fairly confident that no one will call you to account for not delivering them.
5: But isn't that a a danger, too, now that it's rumored that Labour is going to come out with it? I mean, they've denied it, but not particularly convincingly they've denied it. Um, and I guess it remains to be seen. But isn't that a danger now if you've got a large party saying, yes, we'll do that, and there are some smaller component potentially component parties of a coalition that are saying the same thing that we could end up with a dog's breakfast of GST?
4: Uh yes, but uh it's, it's as I understand what Labor is alleged to be promising, they're talking about exempting fruit and vegetables. Right. Uh, the smaller parties are going much beyond that, but I suspect that Labour understands full well that if they give away GST revenue from fruit and vegetables, they've got to find it somewhere else because they're running a large budget deficit and uh, they simply can't afford to do the kind of silly things that some of the smaller parties on the left are advocating.
5: Do you think potentially that this is causing internal problems for Labour with David Parker reportedly throwing his toys out of the cot over as the revenue minister and saying, I don't I don't want to be a minister anymore of that job, but I still want to be a minister of other well my other jobs, but I just don't want to do that one. Do you think that's that taxation and GST and all of these arguments they're having internally in labor is starting to cause some um some splits in the thinking.
4: Oh, I'm sure that must be the case. Uh, I must say I, I admired David Parker for taking the stand he did. Uh, he clearly doesn't agree with Hipkins on, on some several tax issues and agree or not with, with Parker, uh, resigning on a point of principle is something which we should expect to see more ministers do.
5: Uh, <laughs> they don't so resign I, I, at I, all, do they, usually? <laughs> they don't resign at all, let alone on a point of principle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes,
4: I, I I think that... Parker clearly is unhappy with some of the decisions that Hipkins has made on tax and, and said, look, I can't hold the revenue portfolio in this, this, these circumstances.
5: GST worries me because I have seen the mess that it was in Australia and up close and personal. And when you've got major political parties that are talking about horse trading on this and you've got then you know the likes of New Zealand first, but do you think in your gut that, Winston Peters in particular, is just using this policy as a, as a playing card that can be traded uh, when it comes to coalition negotiations. And then he'll put his hand up and say, look, I really tried to do that, but guys, um, you know, National and Act weren't going to go along with um, making any reductions in GST, so sorry, I couldn't deliver on that.
4: I think that's exactly what he's doing. He made it clear he cannot go with Labour, mm. so he would have to go with National Act. And it's just, uh, I think, inconceivable that National or ACT would would agree to that policy.
5: <clears throat> well, yeah, I'd, I'd argue with you on that. I'd say it's very conceivable that National would do that um, and it would only be the ACT Party that would stop them doing that.
4: Uh, well, I could see National agreeing conceivably to fruit and vegetables being exempt, even though they think it's, that's unlikely. But I think it's inconceivable that exempt all food, which I think is what New Zealand First would like to yeah. do. Yeah, yeah. That's a big chunk of revenue. Now, if they were to do that, they would have to either increase taxes somewhere else or persist in running a very large deficit, uh, which would mean higher interest rates and so on and so on. So I don't think National would be, even National, would be silly enough to do that. Uh, I'm quite sure Act would not be.
5: You spoke extensively with Roger Douglas back in the day when this was conceived. Do you think he conceived GST as a way, a, a gateway to bring in his broader views of a flat tax system, uh, by, by stealth via consumption taxes? And if yeah. you if you do, do think, well, let's just discuss that, and because it looks like it to me, but you were more deeply involved in those discussions back then.
4: Yeah, I was not deeply involved in the flat income tax. I, I chaired yeah. no fewer than four separate tax committees for Douglas. Yeah, uh, but none of them dealt with the income tax structure. Funnily enough, uh, GST was one of them. Rural sector taxation was another one. In the old days, you could deduct all kinds of capital expenditure as a current expenditure for tax purposes. Yeah, uh, so you got lots and lots of Queen Street farmers buying things like kiwi fruit orchards, etc. Uh, I was involved. I chaired that committee. I chaired one on uh, on superannuation and life insurance, and I chaired one on what was called the accrual tax treatment of income and expenditure, mm. uh, an abstruse uh, uh, tax issue, which most people don't understand. I didn't understand what I said either, uh, but I didn't get involved in Douglas's idea of a flat income tax. Uh, his, his main concern was that, uh, he wanted to keep income taxes at a moderate level. As you recall, he cut the top tax rate from 66 to 33, yep. the corporate rate from 48 to 33, and he was very keen not to have to push them up. Uh, he was also aware of the fact that there was a lot of tax evasion. Yep. People were dodging tax, and he thought that a GST was very hard to dodge, and indeed it is. I think when Treasury originally estimated how many uh, GST-registered businesses there would be, I think they estimated to be one hundred and twenty thousand. Yeah. In the end, there were one hundred and eighty thousand. Uh, there were just a lot more businesses with, that than Treasury had understood.
5: If you were wanting to do that, though, wouldn't having a kind of a flat tax like a GST in would be a, an interim step? And if you were going to do that, at what level? would a GST need to be to remove the taxation you know, tiers or bans that are currently in existence? I know that's a bit of a curveball, and I'm putting you on the spot there, but, but, but I'm picking that you were smart enough to have actually tried to work that out at some point.
4: <laughs> unfortunately, I haven't. Uh, not, not that smart, unfortunately, Cam. <laughs> but, but, I mean, you recall when Douglas first put that tax in, it was at 10%. Correct. And it was raised to 12.5% by David Cagle after yep. Douglas was fired yep. by David Longhi, and, of course, it raised to 15%.
5: By John Key. Kegel.
4: Yeah, who, who instead, who, um, in place of the increased GST, cut the income
5: tax rates somewhat. I can't recall the details of that. but it was deliberately- Dropped the company tax rate and, and um, changed a couple of things with the, with the top tax rate
4: if I yeah, That's right. The, the corporate rate went from 33 to twenty twenty-eight. Yeah. Uh, I can't recall what was done on the income scale. Um, it may be, am I right in saying Helen Clark had increased the top tax rate, personal tax rate, to 39? 30, and he got it back to 33. Yes. Uh, and cut the corporate rate, that's right, and, and then put the GST from 12.5 to 15. Yeah. Well, I, don't, what, I don't know the answer to your question about You don't know the answer? No sorry about that
5: uh, I'd be interested, I, I'm interested to know what the level of GST would need to be to fully replace income tax uh, I've had various people ask me about that, and I've never been able to work it out.
4: It would be very high and so high in fact that the pressure to uh, try to evade it or avoid it in some way would become very strong. I think it'd be up around forty percent maybe it'd be
5: higher very right. high anyway. So yeah, so so it, it wouldn't be twenty five percent. You'd think it would be four, something like forty percent on everything.
4: I think, I think we're nearer forty than twenty five. Anyway, yeah.
5: Wow, income well, tax raises a lot of revenue. Yeah, exactly. But a lot of revenue from a small number of people too. There's some that—that's the scary part. There's actually a very small base of taxpayers who are actually in a net tax-paying position.
4: That's correct. Yeah. Uh,
5: that, that, I mean, there's just so many um, governmental distractions in ta- in the tax system. And I remember John Key campaigning in 2000 before 2008, saying that um, working for families was communism by stealth. And um, you know, and he and he pledged to abolish working for families, but when he got in, he, yeah, you know, that tax credit system, which is skewing the the, the tax system something terribly. Yeah, uh, he actually extended it. So, you know, it's very hard to believe any politician when it comes to tax, because once they get in and start seeing where they can get revenue from, they seem to love taxes like no tomorrow. Yeah, you were perhaps an exception to that, <laughs> um, but that's probably yeah. because you knew you know, that there was better ways to do things.
4: Yeah, I mean, essentially there are only three broad sources of of tax, either on spending, which is GST, of course, and also, of course, excise taxes on, on alcohol, tobacco, yep. and fuel. Uh, those are quite important sources of revenue too. Um, or taxes on income, uh, and you can define income in various ways to either include uh, what are called capital gains or not, yeah. or thirdly, um, taxes on assets, land taxes or or um, inheritance taxes or wealth taxes, et cetera. There are really only three broad categories, and none of them are perfect by any means.
5: But GST is probably the closest you can get. I think that's right because it's hard to avoid
4: um, and it's a, a, a fairly simple tax to apply for Those who have to collect it. Mm. So, GSA is a very good tax. And I, I'm, and funnily enough, when I was asked by Roger Douglas to chair the committee, I had had no experience in indirect taxation at all. Yeah. Uh, but uh, when I got into it, I could see the huge benefits of that uh, particular tax. And you recall when, when Labour introduced it, the National Party at the time under Jim Bolger, uh, Jim Bolger, yes, um, Jim Bolger, or maybe even Jim McClay. Would have been
5: Jim McClay to start with.
4: Yeah, that's right. We strongly opposed it and promised to scrap it. But in practice, of course, they didn't scrap it.
5: No, they've extended it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. They like mainlining that tax, those taxes straight into the into the coffers, don't they? Yeah. You, you, you touched on inheritance tax and wealth taxes and land taxes and things like that. This is what the Maori Party and, um, and the Greens have come out with uh, in their uh, in their policy mix. Um, you know, I, know, well, I know we're sort of talking about GST and that, but I think it's important that if we look at it. In Australia, they have a capital gains tax. They also have stamp duty in the States as well, um, which is, a, is effectively a property tax. What's the evidence that... That these capital gains taxes and stamp duties and things like that on property have for you know the claims that they make that it's going to make housing more affordable uh, or um, it's going to even up the the playing field for people to access the property later. Uh,
4: I think the idea that a capital gains tax would improve access to housing is a nonsense. As you say, Australia has a capital gains tax. Their housing is even slightly more expensive in Sydney and Melbourne anyway and they're in Auckland. Um, so in my view, the unaffordability of housing doesn't have much to do with whether or not we have a capital gains tax. But uh, we know how to fix the housing market. Political parties and or local governments are just not willing to do it. I, I recall reading uh, an article in the Herald written by Ann Gibson, who's the property editor yeah. of the Herald. Yep. Would it would have be been about a year, maybe 80 months ago, she looked at the average price of houses um, built in Auckland by the seven largest home builders. I think the cheapest homes were built by Williams Corporation. They were quite small apartment-level things, 65 square metres. I think their average price was about 150000 Right. At the other end of the spectrum, uh, it was either Fletcher Building or, or um, GJ Gardner built 200 square metres of uh, houses on average and Their average price, I think, was four hundred eighty. Think, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why four hundred eighty thousand? Isn't the average price of a house in Auckland above a million bucks? Well, yes, it is. The difference is the prices that Ann Gibson was quoting didn't include land.
5: So it was just the the physical building. That's right.
4: Yeah. Now, if we if we had a physical building costing around four hundred thousand, say, for a yeah. decent sized house, and we're paying fifty thousand or a hundred thousand for the section you'd have something like an affordable house. Yeah. But right now, house prices in, in New Zealand, major cities, Auckland certainly, Tauranga also where I am, outrageously pricey, and it's a direct consequence of local governments restricting the supply of land. And you've got this awful case right now where the Auckland Council has vetoed a housing development near Walkworth uh, on fairly cheap land by definition about out in Walkworth. Yes. But they said, no, no, they don't want any further urban sprawl, which is the pejorative term they use for housing built on the fringe. But if you're paying, uh, just another example, um, Papakura, about the same time that Ann Gibson was writing her article, the Herald carried a small article, that small advertisement, for a 400-square-metre section in Papakura. Now, you and I know that Papakura is about 30K mm. from yep. the centre of town. That's right. Bare land, four hundred square meters, priced for nine hundred and seventy thousand bucks. Wow! Now you put a tent on that, and you still can't afford it. It's not the price of the housing; it's the price of the damn land. And it's not like New Zealand's short of land. We've got you know five million people spread across an area larger than the UK. It's outrageous.
5: And then those artificial uh, boundaries that are created—the you know the rural urban boundary the the these are all designed to ration land, and when you ration things, the prices goes up, but then you get an interesting situation start happening and we're seeing this in the debate in this election as well, where we've got some political parties that are talking about rent controls, which is another artificial construct that we see that's very popular in the United States, particularly in New York and places like that, yep effectively creating a tax on landowners because you're not allowed to put your rents up. You can only charge a certain amount. Therefore, what has to happen is the property values have to actually go higher to compensate the landlords for the lack of income that's coming from the rents and exacerbates the problem. And there seems to be very scant evidence, if any evidence at all, that rent controls are successful in making housing affordable. But we seem to see these parties pushing these agendas around rent controls, and the real solution would be, like you say, to make more land available. Now, New York's a little bit difficult. It's constrained by a couple of rivers. There's not a lot of land outside of the main sort of centre, except out to, to Long Island, et cetera. But as you say, New Zealand doesn't have those constraints. Even in Auckland, we don't have those constraints.
4: But so I, I look at Auckland north of the bridge, mm-hmm. and drive from on the northern motorway from a Tia Valley Road exit to the Silverdale exit, 11k, and there's basically nothing there but, but scrub and trees and bush, and it's not like it's high quality orchard land. It's almost certainly North Shore clay, mm-hmm. and and uh, yet they, the council doesn't want to built on apparently.
5: Well, we need to protect those clay fields. Apparently, sorry. We need to protect those clay fields. <laughs> yes, that's, that's exactly. Yeah, I know it's it's insane. But but what we're seeing here is a problem created by politicians, usually, and then another solution, which isn't not a solution, being proposed by the same types of politicians that initially told us that we'd it'd be better if we didn't have urban sprawl and if we all lived in apartments um, and caught the train or walked, that'd be great. But there doesn't seem to be any reality-based uh, policy making here that says that, well, in Auckland, riding a bike with all the hills and everything's a little bit problematic. Uh, we've got this nasty thing in the middle of the city, which is called a harbour. Um, and then we've got a skinny little isthmus that's only about three kilometres wide at the narrowest point. And somehow we're going to have public transport all fit into that and transfer that, and there'll be no problems at all. Oh, and by the way, let's go and spend billions of dollars building a railway to the airport on a business case that says something. Yeah. And all of of that expenditure leads to what? Increased taxes. That's right. (laughs) Because we're not paying our way.
4: Cam, ironically, the politician who was most clear on fixing this problem was actually Phil Twyford. Poor Phil Twyford got lumped with building 100,000 kiwi build houses. But when Labor went into office in 2017 with New Zealand First, mm. in their speech from the throne, it explicitly said, we will scrap the metropolitan urban limit around Auckland. It's still there. Sorry? It's still there. Th- that's right. Now, since that time, of course... Jacinda Ardern has promised explicitly not to scrap it. They've simply not only not not managed to achieve it; they've they've ruled it out, and that's what has to be done. Unfortunately, well, not I thought the government's failed to do it.
5: But the, the, this is the perennial problem or or triennial problem that we have. We have politicians that make grand plans, grand promise, even grander promises, like building hundred thousand homes. Did I just can't believe that the Labour Party didn't have anybody sit there and say, well, actually, 100 grand, where would you get that number from? Can we actually build that? Are there the builders to do it? Is there the land available to do it? Is there this available to do it? And where we are six years later, I don't think they've even cracked 2,000 houses, and even then they've used heroic assumptions to do it. When are we going to get some political parties that have got the stones to stand there and say, well, that's a dumb idea. That's never going to work. You're never going to be able to do that. What we actually can do is this. This is what the capacity in the economy is to do that. It's like saying you're going to build I mean, national policy. They announced on Tuesday they're going to build these massive amounts of roads. Well, there's only about five roading com- companies in the whole country, and most of them are regional as well. And it seems like a scheme to enrich roading companies at huge expense for really short, small pieces of road. This is all just going to head to even more taxes and we're not actually solving any problems. We're not even keeping ahead of the, the growth of the population. And that's where I see GST being incredibly powerful because it actually powers the economy. That's where the revenue where the revenue's coming from. Do you think it's possible that these rapacious politicians might have another go at increasing GST? I don't... Well... uh, Well, ACT will say no to that, surely.
4: (laughs) I don't know, of course. But uh, um, I think at the moment no political party has got a very effective, fully priced budget uh, making making their their case for a, a tax reduction, I think actors made an attempt at it. They've said they'll cut A, B and C and, and, and scrap these government departments, most of which uh, have minimal value. I, I think they'll get quite a lot of public support for not having those departments. But uh, most political parties don't like saying the implications of what their tax policy would mean.
5: Well, this is what scares me. And the reason why I raise that question is if you just have a look at uh, you know, value-added taxes or GSTs around the world, there's a lot of countries that have got um GSTs that are exceeding 20%. A lot. Yep. That's
4: right. And
5: and you know, our politicians are fond of quoting, you know, that we're the average rate of uh, of this in the OECD is that, and aren't we doing well because we're better than that? Uh, I could see uh some, particularly from the parties on the left, them eyeing up the list of uh countries that have got uh, Valuated taxes in excess of twenty percent, and saying, "Well, you know, we're an outlier. We need to get back in line with the OECD." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what's the highest one? Right? What's the do you know? What's the highest one that you know of? I'm just no, scrolling through a list here, and it's I've got twenty five percent in Denmark, twenty four percent in Finland, twenty four percent in Greece. Hungary's got twenty seven. That's the highest so far. You're right. My gosh. 27% in Hungary uh, is 18, well, it's it's a multi-layered one, so 18% on milk and dairy products, cereal, hotels, tickets, to outdoor music vendors, or 5% on pharmaceutical products. So it's, it seems like a dog's breakfast. Uh, Portugal's 23. Uh, these are large numbers. Yes, they are. We're at 15, and we think that's horrendous. Yeah. Uh, you know, I... If if I was David Parker, I'd be eyeing up this list and finding an average that's above 15 and trying to put that in. That's what scares yeah. me.
4: Yeah. Yeah, though I think he's looking for something which would differentially impact high-income people, is not he?
5: Well, yes, he's a, oh, he's, he's, a, of he's a nasty, bitter little socialist who um, has a jealousy streak, and anyone who's do, doing better than him, he wants uh, to see them whacked, so... I'm I'm absolutely certain he'd be a uh, a hard you know fan of capital gains taxes, wealth taxes, and those sorts of things.
4: I think I think that's probably right. Funnily enough, he's one of the few Labour ministers for whom I have some some regard, and not only because he resigned his portfolio when he uh, fell out of line with with Hipkins mm. way back in two thousand and three, when I was in Parliament. Uh, Catherine Rich and I ran a petition for uh, a Royal Commission of Inquiry into the conviction of Peter Ellis. Yes. You'll remember that case, I'm sure. It's an appalling case. An appalling case. And uh, we got all kinds of people signed that. Uh, I think people from every political party in Parliament, Winston Peters signed, Tim Simich signed, uh, Judith Collins signed, uh, Chris Finlayson not yet in Parliament signed, etc. only one guy in Labour signed, and that was David Parker. Right. And he felt so strongly about the issue that he sought approval from his caucus because, of course, Labour was in government at the time. Yeah. Now, the Select Committee said, no, no Royal Commission, but let's instead do what the British have done, set up a Criminal Cases Review Commission to look at any case where the public has a serious misgiving about the soundness of a conviction. Yeah. Labour did nothing. National did nothing in nine years. Labour. Put that criminal case review commission in place after the twenty seven election, twenty seventeen election. Who was Attorney General David Parker. David Parker? Yeah,
5: I've had. I mean, I've got a personal axe to grind with him. He, he smeared me all over Parliament one day. I um, mean, continues to do so. But um, people that I talk to across the political spectrum all have a, a huge respect for David Parker. Um, you've just, you're just another person that's confirmed that. So. He has got a brain in there. Um, it, perhaps if he just, I don't know, tempered his his uh, his own uh, petulance and knee jerk reactions to things, he might get better results. But um, there is a there does seem to be a huge amount of respect for him, and maybe I need to revisit my own personal view of him.
4: Yeah, well, I mean, I don't really know the guy at all. I don't think I've actually met him apart from that one occasion when I collected a signature from him back in yeah. two thousand three. But uh, anyone who feels strongly enough to seek caucus approval to do something which the rest of the caucus don't agree with, yeah, they uh, have to have some respect for.
5: Them. Well, and 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 people who stand up for their principles are few and far between in the parliament, aren't they?
4: Yeah, sadly, that's true.
5: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think we've had a, a pretty decent um, go at this GST. You, what you're saying, Don, is that leave it alone. Don't touch it. It's working perfectly.
4: Absolutely. It's a very good tax. Uh, New Zealand has held up all over the world as having a clean, simple, straightforward GST, and uh, not many countries have had the courage politically to put such a, a tax in place. But please sake, don't give it
5: away. Would you also say don't increase it as well?
4: Uh, I, I, I think 15% is, is, uh, shouldn't be increased. I agree with that. Uh, on the other hand, the government, whichever party, has got a problem on its hands, running a large deficit, so they'll cut back spending strongly or got to find more revenue from somewhere. And, uh, of course, my first preference would be cut back some of the unnecessary spending. But uh, uh, to the extent that they still need more revenue, don't cut GST.
5: Yeah, well, that, that's a whole other debate, isn't it, to talk about what could be cut from government spending. That would mean that we could actually drop GST down a bit. But the trouble with politicians is they love promising things, and those things cost money, and the only way you can get that money is taxes. So what is it uh, Margaret Thatcher famously said, the problem with socialism is you eventually run out of other people's money to spend. Cruel <laughs> words were never said. How true. Very yeah. good. Thank you very much, Don. I appreciate you coming on to The Crunch to talk about GST and uh, let's see how they go in the election with these promises. Very good. Good to talk to you, Cam. All the best. Thank you.
0: You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR, reality check radio.
5: Now it's time for Cam's Buddies. I've decided to share with you how I get impartial advice about issues by calling a few of my mates. Most of them are non-political and we've known each other for over 20 years. I regularly catch up with these mates and they always give me their unvarnished views on anything. My producer has them all lined up and ready to go. Let's hear what Cam's Buddies have to say about the vexing issue of removing GST from food, fruit and veggies. Good afternoon, Jack. Welcome to The Crunch and G'day. Cam's buddies. G'day, Cam. How are you? Oh, I'm fantastic. Hey, Jack, I just want to ask you a couple of questions about GST. You're a small business owner. Yep. Um, you deal yep. with GST all the time. You've been dealing with it for as long as it's been in. What do you think of New Zealand First's policy and the, the rumoured Labour Party policy of removing GST off fruit and vegetables and foods?
10: I think it's rubbish. I think you shouldn't mess with GST at all. I don't know why they'd want to do it because if if their reason is that they want to make it easier for the so-called impoverished people to buy fruit and vegetables, it won't work. For a start off, impoverished people generally don't eat that many fruit and vegetables. I know that sounds trite, but it's true. Wealthy people eat fruit and vegetables, so, so they'll actually uh, prosper, but they won't or won't even care anyway. So anyway, I repeat what I said at the beginning. Don't mess with GST.
5: If um if there was a, a um such a messing of GST, could you envisage a situation where they might want to put GST up? And if they did put it up, what's a number that's acceptable to you?
7: Mm,
10: I hadn't thought about that one. Um, It's hypothetical, but
11: uh,
10: I don't know. If they're going to put it up, they really need to change the whole tax system completely. My idea is that if they want to actually make it better for um, less fortunate people, just uh, stop. Um, Don't tax anyone below $20,000. That would be the easiest. Then you'd have to put the rest of it up a little bit to adjust, but... um, That'll actually get some of the people out to work
5: too. Yeah, I was talking to Don Brasher a bit earlier, and he says the same thing as you, don't touch it. And then we talked about the different uh, tax rates for GST around the world. In the UK, it's 20%. New Zealand's actually probably just slightly below the OECD average, and many European countries are well in excess of 20%. Is it a number you think is politically uh, survivable for a government that wanted to do that?
10: Well, I'm a great fan of Don Brash, so I'd go with whatever he said. You know, more about it it than what I do.
5: He sure does. Right. Thanks for your comments on that, Jack. Um, That'll be appreciated by the listeners. Thanks. See ya. Thanks. Bye. Good afternoon, Paul. Welcome to Cam's Buddies on the Crunch. Good afternoon, Cam. How are you? I'm fantastic. I was just talking to Don Brash. I don't know if you heard what I was saying to him what well, we were talking about, but we were talking about GST and the idea that uh, New Zealand First and it's rumoured the Labour Party are talking about changing GST so that there's exemptions for foodstuffs and for fruit and vegetables. What do you think about that?
12: I think that's a particularly stupid idea. I think if you were to change GST and have it on specific items and not other specific items, the cost of the change from the bureaucrats would be more than the value of the GST, in which case you should take GST off everything. But because by having some things with it and some things without it, um, it's just going to become a nightmare for all businesses and it's going to cost everybody a m- much greater amount of money.
5: Have you got any other thoughts about uh, GST, if there are going to be some changes to it, what, how you think it could be improved? I mean, you've got a number of businesses. You deal with GST or you have staff deal with GST on a day-to-day basis. What suggestions have you got? Well,
12: I've looked at things that make people want to save and things that, see, there's spenders and savers, I guess, out there. Mm. And if you increase the GST and took away, say, the PAYE, then everyone would be encouraged to save, because by spending you pay tax, and by not spending you don't pay tax. And I think that um, I think that tax take from GST is about thirty percent of the tax, and I think the tax take from PAYE might be something um, in the order of just under fifty percent of the tax. So if if everybody got taxed on their PAYE, yet say a flat ten percent and that was all the PAYE that you'd get, then there would be very few people that would bother about trying to avoid it. And then if GST was lifted from, say, 15% to 30%, then there would be a similar amount of actual revenue, Um, but then people that saved their money would... um, not be paying as much tax as people that spend their money. And so I think it would be an incentive for everyone to be a long-term saver. I,
5: I put That's one a, of my Yeah, I put that question to Don Brash, and I said, what do you think the rate would have to be for it to work to reduce the the, the current tax state or replace the current tax state with GST? And he thought the number would be something around 40%. And then he said, "I don't think that's politically possible, and I don't think it's fiscally possible to operate either." And I found that really interesting, given that we've seen politicians mess with GST twice already. We've had it came in at ten percent, and then it was put up by David Cagle to twelve and a half percent, and then put up by John Key to fifteen percent.
12: Yeah, I think what's the total tax now of the whole country? It's something in the order of um, 120 billion or between 110 and 120 billion, I think, is what our tax is running at um, totally. And I think um, it's something like GST makes up um, 35 billion or some minimum like that. And PAYE makes up 50 billion. And there's company tax and then there's bits and pieces of tax, I imagine, from what I remember. Um, but my understanding is that there's a lot of people that talk about how the rich don't pay tax and it's all the big burden is on the poor. And my thoughts are if you made spending, was what rich people do, they, they spend their money often. And um, so if you made it with a full GST on everything, but at the likes of 30% and 10% on a flat tax for PAYE, um, I'm not sure if business tax would remain because they, they make up the other 22 or whatever percent in tax. But I think um, there's a, a fairer way, and people say, oh, the people at the bottom will always suffer under a GST system like that, and I'm saying, I'll well, give them benefits. Yeah. Give the people at the bottom some form of benefit relief as opposed to don't work the system. Because I think anything that makes it simple is much easier. Like at the moment... Um, they've got the PAYE has because inflation and wages and all sorts of things have gone up. Then the PAYE system now everybody is in the top tax bracket as if you're rich because the minimum wage is now forty eight thousand. Yeah, and so the people that were on the, the ten thousand and then twenty thousand and then thirty thousand, when the million, minimum wage is forty eight and the top tax bracket kicks and it's something like sixty or whatever it is. Mm. It's not far that everyone's on the top tax bracket. Well, that's, that's sort of um, taxing the workers heavier by stealth. And then if you go back to the GST question, um, when you're taxing GST and it's not on food, then it, they all get to the, to the ridiculous like, is a McDonald's hamburger, is yeah, the lettuce, the pickle, exactly. and the onion, is that a vegetable? And if it is, what percentage of a burger should be taxed? Yeah. Are uh, fries, vegetables?
5: because they well, taste It like becomes caterer, ludicrous, doesn't it? I looked up the it's, tax it's numbers. In my yeah, I've looked and up the tax numbers I'm, for you. Yes, yes, you might, thank be you. Surpri- you might be surprised by this. So GST in the last financial year collected $37.1 billion. Taxes right. on companies were twenty one point five billion dollars, and taxes on individuals were fifty four point one billion dollars. Right. And all so other, that's all the other not duties far and revenues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The numbers that was off. Look,
12: that wasn't far off what I was saying, as far as the percentage mm. was concerned. So thirty percent. I think that thirty four. Did you say thirty four? 37 billion, on Thirty-seven
5: billion on GST?
12: on yeah. GST. Yeah. Okay. So, as a percentage of um, um, 120 billion or whatever the total it's revenue is. It's about 30%. Is, yeah. Um, yeah. So, it's sort of 30%. Well, And so, I can see that um, Don Brash is correct that people wouldn't have a, an appetite for 40% GST, but they might for 30 if if it was. If your personal income tax was at 10% instead of at
5: 36 or 37%, mm.
12: um, but the thing that actually bothers me about GST is when they GST a tax.
5: Yes, GST so on it, top of excise
12: duties. Yes, so if they tax you on fuel, for example, and then they charge you GST on the lot, I always think it does seem like a double dip.
5: And a triple dip and God knows what else so you're saying oh, yeah. don't mess with GST but if we are going to mess with it let's lower the tax rates to a flat rate uh, whatever the number is that works and find a number that works with GST and um, and and go with that which is probably a little bit too hard for most politicians to comprehend
12: well where where it works is it it encourages saving yeah and it taxes yeah. the wealthy and um, and I'm not saying we have to go out taxing the wealthy, but, um, because, but what is, does seem a bit of a shame when, when people can afford, like myself, I get a pension. I probably don't need a pension, to be fair. <laughs> um, and so the tax take is such that, well, if I'm due a pension, why shouldn't I have it? Um, and if I've worked relatively hard, why shouldn't I get what everybody else gets? But the reality is I probably don't need it. But back to your GST, um, I'm happy when things seem fair to me, I'm happy. So if if I want to go out and spend money on something that's expensive and it it attracts a big GST, so be it.
5: Yeah. Okay. Thanks for that feedback, Paul, and uh, we'll hear from you next week and Cam's buddies as well.
12: Thanks very much, Cam. Take care.
5: Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, Marcus, my Westie buddy. How are you? <laughs>
13: Very good, thanks, Cam. How about yourself?
5: Um, box of birds always fit as a fiddle. Now, I wanted to talk to you Excellent. tonight on uh, Cam's Buddies about GST and the plans of New Zealand First to create exemptions for food and fruit and vegetables and the rumours that Labor's going to do a similar thing. What do you think should happen on GST?
13: Uh, I mean – from my understanding of GST and how it affects the general population, um, GST really is the biggest problem for the lower-income earners and middle class. So, um, unfortunately, I'm, I'm, I'm a proponent of user pays, but that's mm. when it comes to a choice. So, so if you're going to go down a toll road, then you can choose to go through the toll road or you can go via the, the free pass or something like that. Um, but the problem is, is when you're talking about the um, necessities of life, such as, you know, Water and food, yeah, um I think it's not a bad idea to um not sort of penalise people just for living.
5: But wouldn't an exemption have little or no effect to those people at the at the bottom of the pile, so to speak, because there'll be a one-off, maybe a one-off drop in prices uh, when it when it comes I mean, off.
7: i mean
13: we're we're sweating the small stuff. I mean, my biggest problem is that, when it comes to where the tax is generated in New Zealand, it's the middle class that's doing all the heavy lifting. It's if you look at our GDP figures, everything is basically earned from the middle class, and they, these are your average little, you know, mums and dads with a um, family business and that sort of thing—the SMEs of the
7: world—and
13: yep. they're they're doing all the heavy lifting with regards to generating our GDP. And unfortunately, and I I, I believe in capitalism as well, but I don't think where we're at in today's world, ca- capitalism has sort of surpassed countries. I mean, we've got massive companies like BlackRock and Vanguard and the likes hereof. They're making ridiculous amounts of money that we can't even fathom. And they're making more money than any country around the world. So they're, 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 they're it's all out of balance. So we, we're sweating the small stuff. So it's sort of like a, um, I don't know, it's a distraction as far as I can see. You get the people arguing about GST when really the biggest problem is that let's look at where we're getting our money from as a country and see whether we can redirect it in the right areas of where it's going to do the minimum amount of harm. I mean, these massive corporations and that sort of thing that are making this stupid money, if they just paid half of what we're paying in the middle class, you know, it's um, going to make a massive difference to the country.
5: Well, and then you've got taxes on taxes. Um, Paul was uh, earlier just before you was saying what he really objects to about GST is how they whack a GST on top of excise taxes. And, you know, you and I you and I are cigar smokers. We've got massive duties, uh, excise duties on, on tobacco. And then they uh, whack GST on top of that after they've added all the tax on. And the tax is something like 70% of the cost of a cigar.
13: I mean, at the end of it all, we're so heavily taxed in this country, it, it's crazy. And, I mean, people say, I mean, I heard all those um, rich listers recently complaining, saying they should be paying more tax. Well, kind of, I kind of agree, actually. How about you just go and pay some more tax instead of letting all the small business do all the heavy lifting? I mean, like I said, if you look at the GDP, the majority of the the lifting is done by the middle class, and yeah. and that's wrong. The whole the whole thing's wrong. You know, the whole system's not right.
5: Yeah, just talking to Paul, we looked at the numbers, and GST makes up thirty percent of the tax take. And, uh, tax on companies, uh, is smaller than that. Uh, tax on individuals is, um, almost double what the, um, what the GST is. So you're, you're absolutely right. The heavy lifting in terms of the taxation, the largest chunk of taxation comes from those wage and salary earners that are paying P-P-A-Y-E. You Know duties make up a, a, a very small percent of, of the total tax take.
13: Of course, you've got all the um, people I was talking about before that have small businesses, and they're paying GST on everything they do as well. And I mean, like, I own my own small business myself, and um, and I, I see exactly what, who was it Paul was talking about? Yeah. I mean, you get tax on tax, and your um, import duties and all sorts of stuff, and I'm sitting there scratching my head going, well, hang on a second, I feel like I'm paying a ridiculous amount of tax for how much I'm earning. Um, it's, it's just counterintuitive to make companies Pay that sort of when I say companies, small companies, pay that sort of money when they could be reinvesting it into the you know, the company and making making it bigger and better for everybody.
5: Who do you think's a better uh, spender of your tax dollars? Is it you or is it the government? <laughs>
13: um, well, tax is a necessity, sort of, in the system we're in. So I understand, and I don't object to paying tax as long mm. as the taxes like you have insinuated with your question, put into the right use. I mean, a government is there to give us the, the bare necessities, as it were. So your roads and your infrastructure and your waterworks and all that sort of stuff, that, that is where tax should go to. It shouldn't go to, I don't know, um, advertising for any particular policy that they've got coming up or or to and try and buy votes by increasing whatever mums and dads get a benefit back from the, you know, yeah from the um government and that sort of thing. It's not it's not designed for that. So to answer your question in a long about way, I think I can spend my money pretty well on my own and it'll go where it's needed rather than where someone else thinks it's needed.
5: Yeah. So you, so you're you're a bit nervous about wanting to make some changes to GST, but if there were some changes it needs to help those at the bottom of the pile. That's what you're saying, Marcus?
13: Oh I mean like a, uh, kind of, I'm not nervous about changing it. It's sort of like I said. It's sort of a um, a small fry. I mean, we should be looking at where where all the money is generated, and where it isn't generated. More to the point, yep. and GST, as you mentioned, you know, it's 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 not the line share, and it's it's indiscriminate and it's right across the board. And and like I said, I'm I'm a user pays sort of um, line of thinking, but when it comes to the necessities of life. Um, uh, yeah, I don't I don't think it's right that um, we're putting GST on on fruit and veggies and bread and butter and all that sort of stuff. I think it would be good if it was exempt. I don't know. I think uh, I seem to recall that someone in the past has um, tried to do something along those lines or one of their policies and that became too expensive to implement or something was the didn't go down that route. But uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's neither here nor there. I don't think it's going to make too much difference. It certainly won't make any difference to the rich listers because, I mean, you buy a bottle of milk and it's 15% on top of what it is. The other thing I'd like to say is, I mean, say we did go exempt on all these, um, on milk and cheese and all that sort of thing.
7: Mm.
13: What's to say that the corporations that are, um, you know, the pack and saves and the countdowns of the world, or Woolworths is it's soon going to be, Yeah.
7: Um,
13: what's to say that they're not going to um, swallow up some of that profit and, you know, cost of cost of, uh, transport's gone up a little bit, so we'll just we'll give a discount of, say, 8%. We'll take the other 8% from the bottom, you know, in our pocket. Yeah. It's um
5: it's it's, highly it's likely, all, it's isn't it? A
13: bit, well, absolutely. I mean, they're businesses. They're there to make money, so they're going to do that any way they can. They don't That's care what,
5: about yeah. little That's what I'm worried about, that any savings for the people at the bottom will be temporary and uh, non-transparent, and then eventually – you're still paying what you're paying for a loaf of bread and um, it'll make no difference at all to the price at the end of the day. And um, the market will just swallow that up and we won't be collecting GST I on mean, it anymore, but um, the profits of countdown and uh, foodstuffs will still be climbing.
13: We kind of saw that with the petrol excise tax recently. I, I believe it was sort of when they took um, their taxes off and um and Auckland and that over the COVID, um, yeah, sure, it went down. Um, but it pretty soon creeped up again. And, you know, there was things like the Ukraine war blamed and COVID and all the lack of ships around the world and all that sort of thing. Meanwhile, they're shutting down Marsden Point. Um, so, I mean, we we, we can see the – we're not stupid. We can see what's going on and when, when prices creep up again. And then they put the um, tax back on the, the fuel and, whoop, that jumps up exactly like it should.
5: Yep. <laughs> Well, you know, it sounds to me that this policy has some appeal to you and be interesting to see whether any other parties jump on board that. Um, but I suspect that it is a negotiating ploy for coalition negotiations and will be traded away when the big parties refuse to do it.
13: I mean, yeah, absolutely. And I, like I said, I don't think it's going to make a squat difference really to people's um, living, um, it will affect more so than the, the rich, the poor. It'll be better off for the, the poor and the less income earners mm. um, because, obviously, they've got less money to go around. So, therefore, 15% of $5 is um, obviously a little bit more um, yep. uh, critical for them, them than someone who doesn't give us stuff how much it costs.
5: All right, Marcus, thanks for your point of view on that. Uh, certainly different from some of my other buddies, but that's what makes the world go round. Everyone has an opinion. And uh, we get to we get to crunch down those issues uh, on the show. So I appreciate you calling in, Cam's buddies. Thank you. No worries, mate. Thanks. Hello, Jimmy. Welcome to Cam's Buddies. Yeah, I'm Greg here from Queenstown. How is it? Oh, it's Greg from Queenstown. How's the deep south, Greg? Uh, a wee bit of snow this afternoon, but I was able to get it all right. You're pretty
11: good. Yeah.
5: So um, I've just been talking to to my mates about GST and uh, New Zealand first came out with a policy on GST and uh, Labor's rumoured to have a policy to remove GST. What are your thoughts on that? Well, my thoughts about removing GST
11: off fresh food or whatever, that's been tried several times in several countries in the world and it's ended up a complete shower every single time they've tried it. It's completely unworkable. Um, if you go to the supermarket and buy a fresh lettuce, it'll be GST free. But if you go down the aisle a little bit and pick up a bag of a ready-made salad, that won't be GST free.
5: Yeah. So the you're saying you're saying don't touch it.
11: You just leave it Um
5: keep keep it
11: simple. That's one of the good. Th- I mean, nobody likes taxes. But the good no. thing about GST is it's so simple and it's universal. That's the thing. If they do want to make a change, one thing I would suggest is how about they stop charging GST on taxes?
5: You're the good, third, good per- you're the third the person registrar? who's mentioned that, uh, Greg. You're the third person who said that people really object to paying GST on taxes.
11: Yeah, I mean, you, your motor registrations one example. Why are they pa- why are we paying GST on that? Well, the poor buggers up in Auckland who are paying that ten cents a litre extra fuel tax. Why are they getting charged GST on top of that?
5: Well it's a very good question isn't it but they seem to love doing it they slap all these excise taxes and extra duties on and then they put the gst on last and slam us again
11: yeah that that's you know if they really want to help people out who are struggling get rid of the gst off the taxes and things that would make a big big difference to people especially those at the bottom of the heap no
5: yeah well that's the thing the gst seriously affects the bottom of the heap, those at the top of the heap, they don't care what the GST rate is. They'll just keep on paying it.
11: No, exactly, exactly. Um, I mean, there's a whole lot of things like that where they could even, for ease of accounting, they could just zero rate things. Your your fuel taxes and your ACC levies and things like that, they should all be zero rated. That would be so easy to do.
5: So don't touch the GST system as it is with silly exemptions, but you, you, you really think that they need to zero rate uh, excise duties uh, and other taxes so there's not taxes on top of taxes.
11: Yeah, that that's that's the big thing. Um just re registered my car the other day and just looking at the bloody bill. ACC, you know, registration was forty three, which is fine. ACC level forty one, that's fine. Yeah. Other levies one sixty four, well that'll be the green nonsense. Um and then there's GST added on the whole lot of it, on top of the whole lot. You might yeah, have registration it's not a goods or a service; it's a tax. Let's be honest
5: about it. <laughs> it's a tax for having a car, isn't it?
11: Yeah, it is. It's exactly what it is. Um, but yeah, especially for the, you know our friends in Auckland, that um, charging GST on top of their extra ten cents a litre fuel levy—that's just theft.
5: Well, exactly, and they're not even building the systems that they said they were collecting the taxes for. No,
11: exactly. So where's that money going?
5: Into Grant Robertson's great big coffers so he can spend it bribing people.
11: <laughs> it makes you wonder, eh? Uh, yeah.
5: yeah. Thanks for your call, Greg. Uh, appreciate your feedback on that. It's awesome. Thank you. All right. We'll see you soon. Okay. See you. Hello, Jimmy. Hello, Cam. Welcome to Cam's Buddies. You're a new caller to this. I'm looking for some yeah. feedback on the talk around town that New Zealand First. And the Labour Party allegedly are talking about, and the Maori Party are talking about removing GST of food, fruit, and veggies. What do you think about that?
14: I think it's an absolutely absurd um, thing, and it's going to overcomplicate the tax system, not help the poor, pass the profits onto the supermarkets, and also most of the, the benefit will be wealthy people who spend more money on fruit and vegetables,
5: on their kale and quinoa.
14: <laughs> yes. On their expensive organic tail,
5: yeah, the expensive so, organic foods they're happy to pay GST on, but the poor average Kiwi who's buying frozen peas, um, it's not going to affect them at all. Wouldn't the supermarkets just sort of kind of say that they've reduced the GST component? But oh, you know, um, you know, seasonal changes. Uh, this this is the drop price it by five
14: to- percent and keep yeah. the ten percent. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. what will happen. I know people in retail and the don't make up. Then the government net tax will be down and it will have to be made up with tax increase somewhere else. And we will end up worse off. It's just a political soundbite. Typical yeah. of this government.
5: Well, it sounds good, sound-
14: but it's crap. You know, when Martin Bradbury supports it, that it's it's not a good policy.
5: Yeah, yeah I've always had a policy if if uh, people like Martin Bradbury or Simon Wilson at the Herald think something's a good idea. It's a, <laughs>
14: It's, or it's, Rauri supports
5: it. Oh, no, Rauri it's, Waititi. It's, it's a, a good policy. idea. Yeah, it's a crap <laughs> policy, and it's a good idea to do the opposite.
12: <laughs> That's my take on
5: it, Cam.
14: No, I think it's terrible. It's just pure politics and, and Labor doing poll chasing.
5: Yeah. disgrace. Uh, I appreciate your feedback. Thanks and for Roberts calling
14: it. Grant a in... disgrace because he hates it. He hates it, and yet he's still potentially pretending he likes it
5: now. Oh, exactly. Oh, yeah. These are socialists, though. They've never made a text they haven't fallen in love with. <laughs> True. Okay. Thanks, Cam. Thanks for your call, Jimmy. Thanks. I find the opinions of my buddies so helpful. They're unafraid to challenge me or my thinking. There are many times when my views and reckons have been formed by these free and frank discussions. I'm going to keep this up, and if you'd like to be one of my buddies, then let us know in the comments sent to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to
8: 2057. RCR is on a mission to revive Honest Media, and now you too can be an integral part of it by joining the RCR Foundation Members Club. Receive exclusive benefits only available to club members, including your own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions, along with our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes that's delivered to your email box every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio members to see how you can join the mission that's making a difference. Our text machine is now live.
0: Send us your thoughts by texting your message to twenty fifty seven. That's two zero five seven. So get in touch with us now.
5: Right, it's that time of the show where we get your feedback, questions, uh, abuse, hints, ideas. We've got a fair few today, so uh, we'll just crack into that. Uh, Cam. Uh, could you comment on the possibility of New Zealand First and Julian Batchelor camping together? Yeah, sure, I'll comment on that briefly. Not going to happen. I don't think that New Zealand First will entertain uh, Julian Batchelor, particularly in light of some of the company he's been keeping, although he's some of the things he's saying are sensible. I just don't think that, uh, that, that New Zealand First would take that risk. But, hey, that's just my opinion. Thanks for that comment. I've got Mike from Foxton. He says, hi, Cam, again, again, you raised the bar and brought real journalism to your show. That was a fantastic show tonight, and it helped me make my decision regarding my vote. It inspired me to call my older brother to talk politics and ask him politely to consider Winston or NZ Loyal. My brother has Asperger's syndrome and autism, so it's a big deal for him to make up his mind. But hopefully I've made a difference to one voter. Can't wait to hear you and the team tomorrow on a political agenda. You're all my heroes in this most important election in history. Maybe if we had Liz and Winston in power, we could lead the world out of this elite agenda-driven genocide and then us, the unvaccinated, can say, yay, we did it. We're all behind you at RCR, and because of you all, we have hope. Wow, that's a nice comment. Hi, Cam. Your show is a new favorite. I noticed that in your monologue at the beginning on Thursday the 26th, you talked about small parties being a wasted effort and voting for anyone who won't get in being a waste of your vote. And by the end of that, I had the impression that you felt only a vote for National or Labour was worth placing. But then in your interview with Casey Costello, you said National and Labour are two sides of the same coin And anyone thinking of National to get rid of Labour was only turning the coin over. I'm interested what you think is the best thing to do, as that seems like quite a contradiction. It seems to me that at this point in history, we need to be prepared to do something completely different. As you pointed out, National started many of these awful policies. But sadly, it seems likely we will end up with a National Act coalition, which will only reduce the speed of the Titanic slightly. And that was from Bronwyn. Now, Bronwyn, that's kind of not what I said. I was simply saying that if you're looking at placing your vote somewhere, that you should place it with a party that is likely to get into the parliament. But since you asked what my uh, advice was, then if you want to have a change of government, in reality, based on the latest poll from Roy Morgan and the Courier poll the week before that, and the poll from TV3, There's only three parties that you can vote for that will change the government. So you can vote with your party vote because it's the most important vote. Just bear that in mind. Your party vote is the most important vote. You can vote for either national or act or New Zealand first because only those three parties out of all of the other parties are likely to make it back into the parliament. So find a party out of those three that mostly suits where you're at Vote on the party vote for one of those parties, and then we should see a change of government. I hope that's been helpful. Hi, Cam. I've recently added you to my followed list on Twitter and will always read your tweets when scanning my feed. I've noticed some negative feedback in the comments and was compelled to let you know you're doing a fine job and to keep up the good work. Your new The Crunch show is a must-listen and I always look forward to the political roundup on Friday morning. Barry. Thanks, Barry. Appreciate that. Now a guest suggestion. I am both a coffee addict and a reality check radio addict, just saying. I had already crossed that precarious path into addiction to BFD some time ago. Heard an interesting man, Mark Arneal, New Zealand First Party, speaking recently. Is he to be interviewed on reality check radio? Bobby. Thanks, Bobby. We'll take that into account, and uh, I'll try and get him on the show. Regarding the Northland poll, Sarah uh, writes in and says, In the RCR Northland poll, did the question state the candidate name or only the party name? Naming the candidate in an electorate vote poll is vital because of name recognition, door knocking, etc. Without naming the candidate in the options, you are clearly muddying the waters re-party vote versus candidate vote. Well, Sarah, we used a professional polling company, a company that uh, has a very fine record when it comes to polling, and I disagree with you on how you do the polling. And in fact, the way that we asked the question was so that we could gauge name recognition with, with our third question that we asked. And in that poll, Matt King had 19% uh, name recognition, um, but only 2% said that they would support him uh, as the electric candidate. So it's clear to, from the poll, and you can see the poll uh, when I published it on the BFD, if you do a search for the crunch, then you should be able to find it very easily. The poll clearly shows that Matt King and Shane Jones had high name recognition but people weren't prepared to select them for the electorate MP. They're preferring instead to vote for the national candidate. And you can argue all you like about the poll and the methodology. This is a very sound methodology that we use, and it's one that produces unbiased results because it wouldn't be fair if Reality Check Radio used a biased poll, and we certainly won't be doing that. Karine uh, writes in, hi, David Farrah and Cam Slater. Can you tell me where I can find the results for the Northland poll? I've listened to the show, The Crunch. I couldn't find what the party vote for New Zealand First was, only the candidate, Shane Jones, at 6%. I enjoyed the show and look forward to hearing more. Thanks so much. Well, Corrine, if you go to thebfd.co.nz and search for The Crunch, you'll find a replay radio that publishes the uh, the entire results uh, from Curia uh, on that article. Now to Casey Costello's interview. Feedback from there. Liz says, great, it was a great interview with Casey Costello. Very important to keep it clear. And Dave writes in and says, hi, Cam. Oh, my God, the interview with Costello was brilliant. I'm so confused as to what the current mob expect will happen with the current path New Zealand is heading on, except civil war. The subject of civil insurrection is becoming a constant topic that is gaining real momentum. And then on New Zealand first, got the final anonymous comment. The reason why I'm voting for Winston is that I want a voice in Parliament. Simple, anti mandate, anti bro governance, anti woke. I believe that he too was conned by Jacinda Ardern, like so many other national lab rats were. Really appreciate all that feedback, but I'm not getting any negative comments. Come on, surely I'm not that good. You know how to contact us.
0: This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy, right here on RCR.
5: Right, that's it for the crunch this week. We're heading into crunch time in the election. Things are getting interesting now. It's been a real pleasure having you all back this week. I'm loving the feedback and really enjoying sitting here in the host's chair. There's plenty more in this election campaign that we need to crunch into. So a big shout out to you all and thank you for listening and having faith in me as we explore this beautiful game of politics. Email suggestions to inbox at realitycheck.radio for people for me to interview. And let's make this show the best political show in New Zealand. I look forward to you joining me again next Thursday at 4pm for The Crunch with Cam Slater.
0: You've been listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Remember, you can check out the replays for today's show on our website at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash replays. Tune in every Thursday at 4 pm for more with Cam Slater, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio.